Okay. Good evening, everyone. Um, we're very excited to have you here for legal issues with international art exhibitions, um, an event hosted in part by the Art Law Committee of the City Bar and the European Affairs Committee and the Institute of Art and Law, an institute based in London in the UK. As some of you might notice, I am not Diana Werbicki. Diana is sadly ill this evening, and so I will be substituting for her as moderator. I am the current secretary of the City Bar of the Art Law Committee. My name is Amanda Rodermund, and I'm an Art Law Associate at Withers. So I'm really excited to be here tonight, and I'm really excited to discuss and, and have these exceptional group of panelists here. Um, they're going to do a terrific job. So the first panel is going to be legal issues with international art loans, and the second panel is going to be disputes in international art loans. Um, I am lucky enough to introduce Derek Gilman as our first um, speaker. Derek is a distinguished teaching professor of art history and museum leadership and senior advisor to the Drexel President for University Collections at Drexel University. He was an art museum leader for almost 30 years on three continents and has been involved in the construction and renovation of five museum buildings. From 2006 to 2013, he was the executive director and president of the Barnes Foundation. So I am pleased to bring him to the podium. I think you should go ahead. There's a, there's a little thing on this podium which says adjust height. I'm not sure to what it's referring. The screen. Ah, the screen, not myself. So, first of all, I want to say that I'm privileged to be here, and I'm very happy that in addition to the Bar Association that's in, that it's the Institute of Art and Law which is behind it, because one of my earliest friends and um, sparring partners in this field was Norman Palmer, who, um, the late Norman Palmer, who some of you will know and many of you will cherish in memory. So I'm going to talk for a little bit about the logistics of exhibitions, and I'm working what I hope on what I hope is not a false premise. So I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you can honestly say that you feel you have a real grasp on the logistics and how international art exhibitions actually work, legal issues aside? Okay, that's about four people <laughs> who may now go to sleep. And because what I want to do is, as it were, set the table for the panelists that follow. Uh, I do actually have an LLM, but I'm not a lawyer, and I don't intend to discuss the details of the legal concerns that will be the subject of the rest of the evening. What I do want to do is, as it were, sketch out the process of the entire loan, the entire exhibition um, adventure, and so that we have a, a picture in which to fit these disputes. And you know, it might be thought, and I know that many of you are practicing lawyers, it might be thought, you know, as members of the profession, that you're in at the beginning of a major international loan exhibition, which you almost invariably are never. Loan exhibitions normally beat lawyers by about two years uh, before they become engaged. And so it is actually, I think, quite useful to talk about you know, how they evolve. They start off as ideas, and they start off as 
debates. I often tell my students and anybody who's willing to listen that, that exhibitions, and certainly large exhibitions, are essentially movies and they have similar sorts of structures. And sometimes you can even, if you're in a playful mood, map on the roles of the exhibition adventurers with the roles of those who make movies. The only good thing about them is that the credits at the end of an international exhibition or in the catalogue don't go on for five minutes. So let me... I'm going to do this. It worked, didn't it? No, it didn't. Oh, it just rang. It just, it, it just dinged. There I go. Thank you. There you go. How, how do they get started? What is the beginning? Started? Right. Two years in the making. Two years in the making. Two years in the argument. Well, yes, two, year, two years in the making. So it starts off in, as an idea in somebody's head. Curators hate it for, the, for it to be the idea in the director's head. Um, they much prefer it, it's the idea in a curator's head. When one's talking about international loan exhibitions, one's by and large talking about fairly large affairs, which is not to say that there aren't smaller ones, but often we're talking about large affairs, and therefore large staffs with many players. So somebody, some bright spark comes up with an idea. In a large, ex, in a large institution, it may be that there's simply a waiting list and it's finally their turn, and woe betide them if they haven't come up with something convincing by now, because you know, 10 years will roll around or 20 years before they get a second chance. The question for many museums, actually all museums, when an idea is launched is who to get involved in discussing the idea. It was always the case from the beginning of museums to about 20 years ago that the person who had the idea ran the idea all the way through. And then there was this rather um, presumptuous idea which came essentially from development and marketing folks that it would be really good if other people had an input into the idea early on because quite honestly, as you well know, the multitude of exhibitions crash and burn um, after they're launched, um, assuming they don't before they're launched, simply because it was a bad idea or nobody wanted to see it. And there are indeed, I mean, I've worked on exhibitions that nobody wanted to see, and they're very, they were very meritorious, but museums can't afford to do that anymore. It was probably the case that you could afford to do that sort of thing long before funding sources changed, not only um, in Britain, but everywhere else. America has always been privately funded, but the countries which originate exhibitions in Europe, um, which we're no longer a part, uh, are now depending less and less on government funding. So there has to be money. And curators get really, really ratty about being questioned on the validity of an idea. So I quite like other people being involved. There's a debate, there's a discussion. How does it work? So I put these slides up simply because it was an idea that I had um, about when I first moved, I had a brief period at Christie's um, for a year and a bit as chairman of Impressionist and Modern Art there between my um, non-for-profit life, in, in, in the little gap in my not-for-profit life. And when I, I, before I went there, I spent a year at Drexel, I came up with the idea of doing a show on the great 17th century Chinese painter Bada Shanarin. And I went to Beijing and I discussed it with the Palace Museum, who said, we would quite like to do it with you, 
Um, we would have much rather you were still at the Barnes than at Drexel University, which is not nearly as prestigious. However, we're willing to lend, as long as you don't involve the Shanghai Museum. So we'll do it ourselves. And for various reasons, it was a, it was a, it was a show on album paintings. So that was a, it would have been a venue to venue. Might have toured it. And then I went to Christie's, and we, we played with this idea in a different way of Barashanren's lotuses and, and perhaps Monet's lilies. That didn't work for complex internal reasons, which we will gloss over. And I went back to, came back to Drexel as, um, on a permanent basis and toyed with the idea again and ran it by my museum colleagues. And in the end, it got trashed because... Yeah, there wasn't much traction for the idea of a major, rather difficult 17th century Chinese painter in somewhere like Philadelphia. And I was amused to see today, of course, that, the, that, that um, LACMA is in the middle of this huge exhibition on uh, a painter who shared the same century, uh, sorry, it was the century before Bada, uh, Chou Ying. So they clearly got it through. But you had to play with the idea. Some ideas just aren't worth it. Some ideas you kick around for a long time, they turn into something else. But there's a discussion. And in that early, in that early phase of talking about the idea, all sorts of things happen. First of all, I have a discussion about will it work? Is it financially justified? Can the institution support it? Are the resources going to be there? Can they be brought in from elsewhere? There is this minor question of, is it aligned with the mission? A sort of unfashionable question, but not a bad one to ask in an institution. And then the, with international exhibitions, almost invariably, can it tour? Can we, can we get money from elsewhere as well? And if it tours, with whom? What are our partners and where does it go? And international exhibitions, ideally, because equity is a good thing, should be in different countries. The idea for the ideal, and it's always the ideal for organizing an international show, was five years. I mean, it almost never happens. They tend to just get thrown out um, at short notice. I'm having another go with this. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah, you can, can I have a question? Maybe I'll click. Oh, oh yeah, 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 no, it worked. It goes the other way. Right. Yes, I'll... So the quick question is, when you're brainstorming and yeah. thinking about feasibility, who's involved? Is the board involved? Are committees at the museum involved? Who are the people making the decisions and kicking the ideas around aside from the curatorial team? So as soon as you get to budget, estimated budgets, and and start thinking about involving the institution at a serious level, it's a good idea to share the idea with exhibition committees. It's, it's not necessarily a good idea. I mean, actually, it can be a good idea to share it with the board early on if you've got a board that you trust and the board trusts you. That's rarely the case. You know, getting, having the chance of the show being shot down early on before you've before you painted your masterpiece it's a little risky, but it depends. Steve Weil always used to say, it depends. And I, so it's a, it's, you know, two words that I've lived by ever since. So if there's a museum committee, certainly, if the relationship's good. A lot of these discussions in the early days are very informal, mm -hmm. and they really are professional testing. 
But once you, I think what the, there is a point at which it has to become shared, which is if you want to get it on the schedule. Because mm. once it's on the schedule, then it becomes part of the museum life, and then it really is official. So there, is a, there are leagues. I watch English football, and there are leagues. There are four principal leagues. And as there are leagues in sports here, different divisions, the leagues are quite a good analogy for me because there's clearly a first division, there's a premiership, Premier League in museums, and there's a championship league, and it goes down. And if you're playing in the Premier League, if you're playing in the top group, you tend to play with the teams in your group. And it makes sense because you get used to each other, but they're also the venues which have the most resources, and they largely get the largest audiences, and they attract the largest sponsors. So it makes sense that you know, Musée d'Orsay plays with the Met or a MoMA or the Art Institute of Chicago, and not with, and I won't actually say a smaller museum because somebody will be here who is on the board or knows them well and they'll be terribly insulted, but you know, not down the league. You occasionally get this sort of cross-league play when it's a very specialist show where there's an institution which may hold an awful lot of the work that you need, or for some reason, it just makes sense. But by and large, institutions play with their own sizes and their own reputations. And then, so what you're doing, this, the early stage of the process is, very, is pretty experimental, um, in, in which you're, once you, once you decide you really want to do it and you're talking to your partners, you're not talking to lenders at this stage. You're, you're negotiating with, between the institutions. You're negotiating loan fees. You're negotiating transport costs. You're negotiating what you, need, what you can share in a possible exhibition. So all the, 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 the shape of the budget is worked out, and you're estimating what sort of sponsorship you might attract to see, and you're still testing the viability. It, you, you can get this far with several partners involved and just fold the whole thing. It's like sort of throwing in a poker hand and say, just in the end, it's simply not worth it. And if a catalogue's going to be produced, then that's the point at which you start thinking about who might be writing the catalogue, because they come in very early on. There's, um, then you get to the loans and the, and the lenders, which are you know, indeed, I'm sure, a large part of the discussion today. So this is, once you've, once you've got the, sort of the shape of what this exhibition, where this exhibition might go and how big it's going to be, then you think of, really think about the, what's in it. And the curators involved, and it might be a multi-institution, might be organized not just logistically, but actually curatorially by a couple of institutions. That's not unknown. So people put their heads together and come up with the ideal list, and generally things are known where they are. Interesting, the Internet's made it, certainly for ob objects, it's not necessarily paintings, it's made it easier to find things, in, certainly in museums, and, um, and then there are lots of, even outside the museum, if you don't know where everything is, then you've got friends in the commercial world who will know where they are, who you can turn to. So here's a question. Yes. If the lead museum... Will they ask the participating museums for help reaching out to contacts if the participating museums have a relationship with potentially one of the lenders? Absolutely, absolutely. And the thing about the lead museum is the lead museum will normally be the museum which thought of the idea, mm -hmm. normally, but not always, because it may end up with the museum which seems to have in this domain the most resources. And it might be, the, it might be another institution thought of it, but that, the, other, the other partner has 
has a richer collection, makes more sense than to be the lead museum. That's where you start negotiating what the, what the benefits. The advantage, there, is, there, there, are, there are advantages of being a lead museum is often you can be the first venue. Right. But the, so to answer your question, yeah, absolutely. You always, you, you, you get, you go to people however you can. In the in the you know in the most efficacious way. So if you're doing, if you're you know if your museum if your museum in New York and you're working with the museum in Chicago and you know yeah, Mrs X who has the wonderful collection of the artists you you want to show is living in Chicago. Absolutely, they're the people to reach out to, and for you know every good reason. Perfect. Moving through. Hmm? Shall we go to the next slide? Um, okay. I would love to go to the next. Slide. These are the loan letters. So the loan letter you, you send out, um, and I'm the, and again, as the, the law is amongst you, and I'm sure many of you, and those of you who've been engaged in, in, in exhibitions will know that the practice is that your client will receive two documents, a begging letter from the director saying, your work is the most important example of this artist that is ever, ever created. And it's absolutely imperative that you lend it. If you don't lend it, we'll fold the entire thing and we'll all commit harakiri on the slopes of whichever. And it's accompanied by the contract agreement, which in the letter says at the end, we fervently hope you'll accept and we'd really appreciate it also if you'd sign on the dotted line and return the whole batch to us and accept all our conditions as they are. And the, the contracts, I mean, I've worked in a number of institutions, national, national museums, state museums, private university museums, and the letters, the contract letters, tend to be very much of the same type, largely because we all cheat and copy each other's loan documents. We, the museums are always looking at other people's loan documents to see if they're any better than theirs, and if they find a better clause, they'll insert it. And just, it's just, so they, they end up looking rather like each other because they're just, it's, it's, everybody copies the Beatles in the end. You know, you just keep on copying and copying and copying. So the provisions tend to look rather similar in contracts. So you, you, you send them out and then you pray. Um, and the, the contracts obviously involve all the things that we're going to be talking about today. And insurance and security and um, time of loan and transport, and they all give you assurances that you won't pay a dime for anything. So sort of familiar things, which we'll go into in some detail. In later, in later, in later. And how do you feel when people say no? I hate it. Um, they do all the time. I mean, it really is the case that uh, it's very much ask, asking for loans as somebody who's run museums for a long time, um, is very much like asking for money. You just have to get used to people turning you down. It just, it's the nature of the game. So what you then have is a, is a secondary list, uh, which I'll come to in just a moment. But you, get, you do get, actually, let's come to that now. You get the second round of requests. And this is really interesting because what you don't want to end up with is a lousy show or a show which is uneven because it's reputational. So you do have, so the first, the first batch of Badash Anran paintings I showed you, just for the sake of example, were all magnificent examples. They were from the Shanghai Museum, from the National Art Museum in China, from the Boston Museum, and you know, as, as good as it gets. And then you, and then you say, well, they, Boston won't lend, or the 
Shanghai Museum won't lend. So you say, should we borrow this one from the Penn State, from the Palmer Art Museum, which is a very nice painting, but it's not of the same quality as the other ones, and can we get away with it? It'll fill a gap, and the only people who will know that it really isn't quite as good as the others are the Barashanren connoisseurs like us. And do we want to take the risk? That's just a judgment call. And then you can translate that to any show you like and think about it because invariably you're going to have to go back and do an entire second round. The, what, what is actually one of the things that happens, and it's not to do with the necessarily the, the, the being denied on the first request. It's individual lenders. This is often, this is, can be museums, but it can often be individual lenders as well. Um, say, we'll lend to one venue or two venues, but not to all three venues. That makes it complicated, but understandable. Then you're in a negotiation, because the venue that doesn't have the work has got a lesser exhibition. And if you say, okay, with one object, that's fine, but with 10 objects, it becomes a little iffy. And I'm sure you've all read reviews, and which will say, and we saw this show in Paris, and it was brilliant. And when we saw it in Washington, it was less good, because, you know, a fifth of the loans dropped out on the way. Just, it was just part of the deal. So you just, but you have to accept that, and you have to decide um, you know, what, your, what, what you can take as a substitute. And, and then there's also, there's the, as one's going through the loan process, um, you are thinking about where one's borrowing from. And this is the stage where number two bullet point on the slide, it's really where the rubber hits the road because you then finalize the budgets and it becomes um, you know, apparent that you've got something which will work or something which won't work. And I was just, I had this horrible thought today because of reading um, what we've all been reading about the coronavirus. And yesterday there was a report on, I don't say CNN or Guardian, um, about impact, possible impact on the American economy later in the year. And, and saying, well, what happened, what would happen, it's a terrible thing to think about, if the virus actually spread and people stopped going to, wanting to congregate in public places. Well, what's a big public place? A museum. So, you know, the first thing, you, you have a show which is costs, let's say, $5 million to put together, and it's going to be your blockbuster of the summer, and then you, and there's nothing you can do about it. You put it on, and nobody comes for an act of God. So there are these horrible things that can happen, but essentially, you're finalizing a budget and saying, we've got to break even, or, you know, we're going to make a little bit of money, or we have exhibition subsidies, and then how much sponsorship do we need and this is where the finance people then sort of start putting the garrote around the necks of the curators. And the registrars are in here because they're saying things like, yes, of course you can have that fabulous loan from Shanghai. That simply is going to cost you a fortune because they're going to come over. But they're sending two curators both ways, there and back. And they're both traveling business class. You're lucky to get away with not first class. And they're going to stay at this, and they want to stay at the Ritz. And they want to stay here for three weeks on both ends. And that's fine, except that's just killed your budget. So then you say, well, do we really need that Shanghai loan? But it's very critical for the show. And do we sacrifice something else? Or, and then you turn to the development department and say, can you raise another million dollars, please? And they say, what about the other four shows that I'm doing for those other four people? So the budget becomes a very anxious moment for the whole institution between different departments because it is like a movie. It's a very expensive, but international loan exhibitions are very expensive projects. And like movies, they do actually 
fail horribly. Um, you know, just have, look at cats. I mean, that should have been a great success, but I wouldn't have liked to, I'm sorry if any of you have been backers of cats, but I wouldn't have liked to be that. That's the sort of thing that can happen. Derek, quick question. What about the fee that participating museums sometimes pay the lead museum? Right. So the, the loan fees are negotiated sort of fairly early on in the process, and it can be very expensive. The they become pretty much sort of matter of fact when it's a, it's a long tour. So something like, you know, these Tutankhamun tours, which go on for four years and they travel around the world, and they make a huge amount of money for every institution that does them, but they cost a fortune. You know, it costs a million dollars up to, to hire them, but that's a pretty standard ticket. You're just, you know, it's like going to a store. You know that's what they cost. It's, it's more complex when you say you've got three institutions and... Your, that's a sort of more of a cost-sharing. The, the, the loan fees, so it's cost-sharing generally when you've got a small group collaborating. When, you, when you're going into a, in a, into a larger, more standard tour, the sorts of tours the American Federation of Arts organizes or tours that will go on for a long time, and then you say, okay, we're the, we, we three institutions are the organizers and anybody else who comes on, they pay a loan fee and we're going to set it at this. Mm-hmm. Now, I, know, I remember I wasn't around when the Barnes toured the collection in the mid-90s. I wasn't around, but I read all the documents pertaining to it. And I can tell you, and I'm not going to tell you to whom this relates, that you know, there were institutions which got off more lightly than others because they simply couldn't afford it. And they were desirable institutions for, for, for clearly for different reasons, but they simply didn't have the weight, um, the financial you know, clout that the major ones did. So they just, if you look at what people paid, it's not all the same. But like salaries in an organization, you never disclose it. Here we go. Um, so this is, uh, this is just a, the, the photograph on the top. I, anybody recognize it? It's, a, it's actually it's a little detail from Ai Weiwei's um, F Lotus, which you know, fat lotus, uh, which he, it was an installation about refugee crisis, which he did in the Vienna uh, Belvedere. And I was just sort of, th- I just, I pulled that image up, but relating to my Badashana and Lotus exhibition, but, you know, just because I was using on lotuses. So you think about, you know, you think about catalogs, you're thinking about dramatic images, you're thinking that the marketing people are involved and they've got to sell the show, and all the other things that go on inside a large show, education and programming and special events, and special events are part of development strategy and they rarely make money, but they're part of the development strategy, like, like openings are. So, and the next step is there's lighting and design, and there's not much to say about this because in a large exhibition, Lighting and design, exhibition lighting and design is complex. It's done by specialists. Uh, it's, it's a highly professional activity. Painting exhibitions tend to be hung. Object exhibitions tend to be designed. And the only thing I would say about it, that the only, the only issue that, that's controversial about lighting design outside the institutions themselves are, in the case especially, especially of individual lenders, where my paintings being placed? Where my paintings being placed? I remember going round an exhibition in Texas with a major collector um, who lent a very beautiful Monet to a show, and he was actually I had to it wasn't my show, um, but I didn't think what the museum had done was bad. But I really had to talk him off the fence. He was getting he was ready sort of to find the director and kill them. Uh, and I don't think it gets to a legal situation, uh, you know, but it's, it can be a little iffy about where things are displayed. 
And then there's installation. This is a, so this image is courtesy of the Getty Trust, and it's uh, an image, here we are, of the, um, of a silver ewer from the Bertouville treasure, which um, was, on, was studied by the Getty for quite a long time. Just, this is how things arrive. They come in very beautiful boxes, packaged with styrofoam or other forms of padding, and they have to be condition reported, and one hopes that the condition report when they arrive is the same as the condition report when they left. And you'll hope that the condition report at the end of the exhibition is the same as the other two condition reports. And then you'll fervently hope that the condition report when it arrives back with the original owner is the same as the other three. But condition reporting is an absolutely critical part of the process. Up to now, we've been talking largely about curators and then the other divisions, development, marketing. The actual, all the transit, apart from the lawyers involved, who are now long involved, is registrarial. And now we're in conservation territory. It's the conservators who do the condition reporting. Occasionally registrars will, but essentially it's a conservation practice. And I put up the Barnes dance mural because I'm going to give you what I will amuse you, um, a, a little um, entertainment in a moment. Oh, I'm going to do it now. now. Na it's now. It's now. So how do we play it? I'm going to, what do we do? We press. press. What do we press? This. Amanda's. So this is a deinstallation rather than installation, but you'll get the idea. It's three minutes. Enjoy it. This is a very valuable work of art. Three works of art. Actually, I should talk Can you through. Can you tell us? I, no, I should doing talk what? you through. I'm just amused. <laughs> I'm just because for me this is the Keystone Cops video. So, who are these people? Who are these people? I'll tell you, well, what's the object and who are these people? The object is the dance mural at, and this is the, this is the Merion Barnes. This is the original Barnes. And we were moving it from the original Barnes to Philadelphia, to the new campus. And the, the, the new Barnes was built to accommodate these paintings, and we had about, what? <laughs> it went down, yes. Stop! Um, <laughs> we had about, um, something like a sixteenth of an inch spare in the new building to take these. So the people involved are the, the Barnes conservators, the Barnes art handlers, and a team from the art moving company Atelier who did the move for the Barnes. And I, when we did the move, people used to say, how did you move the collection? And I didn't tell anybody, um, except that I would say we moved it down the Schuylkill on nuclear submarine. Um, and some of them paused and looked sort of thoughtful. But Atelier, Atelier were the practice that moved it. So uh, they built the scaffolding. I just think, all, you know, for, again, from a legal perspective, just think how many liability issues there are here. It's fantastic, you know, with the, with, with the rigging and the scaffold and the capacity of dropping, or at least it was our painting, uh, our painting. So it's, it's, they're three large canvases which are like sails. And they were actually, when they were painted in Nice, they, Matisse rolled them up and sent them to Philadelphia, and they were stretched in, in, at the barns originally in Merion. So, but when, you, when you've got them, when you're doing this, they literally are like large sails, and they ended up, each one in these very big crates, and they were transported to the new barns in three of these crates. So down they go. And, um, and in the new barns, it, it was exactly the same in reverse. We actually, um, so there is another installation video. We all signed 
the wall in the new building to, before they went up with the hope that we would never see our signatures again. And it just sort of shows the, just the crating process. So everything about crating is very precise, designed before, and the whole business of art handling is a, is a, a serious profession, and you should only use serious professionals. And um, how long did this take? That took a day. Okay. The whole, the, the move and the, the move, the deinstallation and the installation took two days, sort of, you know, the whole thing. But yeah, we just, um, actually, no, that's not true. For four days. No, that was actually two days. Now I remember because it, we, we got two panels down on the first day. And then, yeah, it, we just did two panels and then the two, two canvases. And the third, the second day was the third one. You were right. So it was, uh, but it was, I, it was, it, this wasn't so anxious making. But I can tell you, when we went for the installation at the other end, I was standing on the opposite balcony in Philadelphia when the first of the, these were going in into, with theoretically the 16th of an inch gap. And it just, there was a moment when they paused and then it just went straight in and one breathed. Anyway, is that just gives you. gasped. Mm? And gasped. I, yeah, yeah. And then probably went and had a drink. So I want to go on. So then it, the exhibition is up. Uh, and all sorts of capacity for disaster now when the exhibition on, like kids sticking chewing gum on Frankenthalers, fires happening, you know, all the, all the things that you really, that you seriously don't want to even think about, but they lurk in the darkest parts of one's brain. Um, security lapses, theft, you're familiar with all of these, deliberate vandalism, um, carelessness, negligence, security guards falling over things, members of the public falling over things. This is sort of the ideal exhibition um, installation where you have, this is again, it's Chinese painting as an example, where you have a series of paintings behind perspex covers. So even if you, somebody walked in with a can of Coke or a, or a McDonald's and hur hurled it at the picture, you know, no damage at all. They just get carted off. So this is the ideal situation, but exhibitions, the, so we, we, we all um, either um, laughed or cried or scratched our head over the um, Gabriel Rocco sculpture earlier in the year which exploded in Mexico City. That's the sort of thing you really don't want to happen. Um, I remember a show um, that, um, that I did in my first museum directorship which involved lots of jagged shards of broken glass which the curator at first thought was fine, fine just to leave them scattered around the gallery. And then we pointed out just before the show opened that school children were coming in and you know, this may not go down well either with parents in, in principle or certainly not with parents when one of their kids fell on top of one. So they ended up with little barriers around them. That was absolutely fine. So coming towards the end now, um, we've... we've uh, and then we deinstall it. Another image from um, a conservator from the Getty Trust. Um, and do they always wear gloves? They always wear gloves. Yes, yes. Okay. And and they and they they're always dead serious too. And I know because my daughter is a conservator, so she wears gloves and she's very serious. And uh, and then and then it goes on. So part of the transport arrangements often when you're sharing costs is that you. Uh, you pay for the exhibition coming to you and the next, inst next institution pays for it going on. It's one way of doing it. Or you can just share costs. But on it goes and you hope it all ends up with the owners at the end of the show 
intact and they're willing to work with you again. And that's the story. It's a great story. Thank you. Okay. Does anyone have any questions quickly? Any questions? No? Okay, thank you, Derek. Right. And now on to our next panelist. So I'm going to invite Megan No, Jonathan Halpern, and Rudy up to the podium. So our first panelist is Megan No, partner at Pryor Cashman. Megan is a partner in the Art Law Group and has nearly 15 years of combined experience in private practice and both in-house legal and business positions in the auction world. Megan has extensive knowledge of the complex issues impacting today's art market. Her clients include auction houses, collectors, galleries, individual artists, estates, and nonprofits, whom she counsels on a range of transactional and litigation matters. Megan is also a member of the Art Law Committee, so she's home here today, and we welcome her to the podium. Just making sure that works. Okay. Um, so I was asked today to present the perspective of both domestic private U.S. lenders who are lending to foreign institutions or foreign borrowers, as well as the perspective of U.S.-based institutions who are borrowing from lenders located abroad. Um, so this first slide just sort of covers the issues that we're going to, summarizes the issues we'll cover. Um, insurance and indemnification is the issue I'm going to speak for the longest time about, so buckle your seatbelts, but um, as Alex can attest when he speaks before the next panel and about a little bit, a bit about, I hope, the IAL project in which I have been involved as well as a number of um, other international practitioners, which is a project geared towards establishing lots of different international loan practices from those ju different jurisdictions. Um, I think insurance is really sort of the number one negotiation point for all of the reasons that Derek just helpfully prefaced, that, you know, things can go wrong. Um, so the industry standard is for the borrower to accept liability for loss and damage from the point that it takes custody and control of the borrowed works until the time that they're returned to the lender or in some cases forwarded on to a subsequent uh, venue in the exhibition tour, which would then assume liability at that point. But beyond that basic assumption, there are a number of key variables, such as what kind of policy, with what kind of coverage, with what exclusions, and governed by what law. In addition, over the last few years, museums have observed a trend of lenders seeking for them to accept absolute liability, which is liability for reimbursement beyond the limits of the borrower's policy, whether in terms of the monetary cap or the specific excluded kinds of loss. Museums and other borrowers typically have top-of-the-line policies with broad coverage, but they're operating in the same market as everyone else, and Anne may be able to speak to this a bit, a bit in the next panel as well, 
which is to say that you know there are exclusions to their policies for things like war or warlike hostilities, inherent vice, normal wear and tear. So when a borrower is asked to assume absolute liability, they are essentially being asked to pay out of pocket if, that, if a, a loss occurs that would normally be excluded. Museums can take out expensive riders to fulfill this request, or they can self-insure, but where they're operating as nonprofits or are otherwise leanly resourced, they may understandably be more reluctant to do so than privately funded institutions with larger budgets. Um, in addition, some state-sponsored museums are subject to a foreign country's national indemnity scheme, and indemnity in this context meaning loss and damage liability coverage, which might preclude them from engaging commercial coverage at all. Um, without getting too nitty-gritty here, I will also mention that when a domestic lender loans work to a foreign institution, even pursuant to a borrower policy that provides for absolute liability, she will want to be mindful of the appraisal of loss and dispute resolution provisions within that policy. Is the lender assuming the right of the insured institution to participate in the appraisal process, i.e. to select an appraiser or challenge the assessment of diminution in value? If the lender stepping into the shoes of the institution needs to engage in a dispute with the insurer about the policy, will that dispute be governed by the law of the country where the borrowing institution is located, thereby requiring the lender to engage foreign counsel? That can be unattractive. So for those or other reasons, sometimes a lender chooses to maintain her own insurance for the loaned works, either as a secondary or excess layer, which requires language in the loan contract acknowledging that, or as the main coverage, in which case they may ask the borrowing institution to reimburse them for the portion of the premium attributable to the loaned work during the loaned term, which is a tricky calculation, or in other instances, the lender may require that the borrower take out a work-specific policy, meaning an insurance policy through a broker selected by the lender that is specific only to the loaned works. Um, you're probably already bored of insurance issues, which I could weirdly talk about for hours, so please feel free to come talk to me after. Um, but I would be remiss not to give a quick note about indemnification which is a related issue because it implicates the borrower's policies of general commercial liability or other related policies that may pertain to third-party loss. So what do I mean by third-party loss? I mean if a visitor to an exhibition slips and falls or the loaned piece of artwork falls on that person because of improper installation by the museum. So a lender, you know, who's sophisticated in negotiating with a foreign borrower will ask for indemnification against those kinds of claims. Okay, I promise everything else will be a little bit shorter. <laughs> when a work is being loaned overseas, another major issue to consider is the status of its import into the country where the borrowing institution is located. A work can typically be imported pursuant to a temporary import or carnet status, which benefits the lender by exempting them from duties or taxes that they might otherwise be asked to pay by bringing a, a valuable foreign work into the country. Rudy is going to cover some of the UK specifics on this with respect to the Nairu scheme. And so I'll just preview that by noting that when a work is subject to a temporary import status, a lender needs to be really careful about engaging in commercial activity that might conflict with that status. So offering the work for sale or selling the work when it's on the museum's wall, which the museum doesn't really like anyway, but, you know, sometimes clients ask us to do these things. 
Um, so the next point is immunity from seizure. I think the second panel is going to cover this in greater detail. So I'll simply note that when a work is being loaned overseas, it's also being at least theoretically exposed to a higher risk of seizure. <clears throat> I mean, if you think about it, it's being subject to high-profile publicity, which may flush out, flush out a claim, or it's passing through the hands of governmental authorities who have the right to seize things and are looking for um, property that's subject to a claim. The good news is that some foreign countries have immunity from seizure programs that protect loans from outside their national borders. However, there's a wide variance in these programs, some of which protect only objects from governments or nationalized institutions. Belgium's an example of that. And others of which apply more broadly, including to privately owned objects. So Japan and Australia fall into that category. Many of these immunity programs require the lender to fully disclose the provenance and ownership of the painting. So the institution can publish that information about the work in advance of the exhibition. Again, that goes towards flushing out a potential claim. But that kind of publication potentially raises privacy issues for the lenders. So you have to look as a lender very carefully as to whether the foreign jurisdiction permits you to publish anonymously that it's owned by a private collection or similar. Um, with respect to logistics and standard of care, Derek did a great job talking about what really are museum best practices and the, highest, the high standard that you should expect as a lender that, you're, that an institution apply with respect to your work. You don't want the museum to be using man with a van from Craigslist, right? So I won't go too far into detail on these points, but again, a lender should ask that a museum be using a professional shipping company, that the packing and unpacking is documented, that condition reports are prepared at each stage, that the museum exercise a standard of care with respect to the works equivalent to how it would take care of its own collections, or if the museum is lesser known, equivalent to reputable institutions in the US and Europe. You want them to have modern, fully functioning security and climate control systems, and it may be appropriate to use barriers or specific kinds of alarms like tremblers for specific pieces. I'm going to really crank through this topic as well. On the screen are all catalogs that I, my clients have had works in these exhibitions. Um, so just a quick note that oftentimes a museum's default agreement for borrowing work from a private collector will ask that lender to represent and warrant that the museum has the right to reproduce images of the work in connection with its exhibition catalog or other uses. That's not really something a lender can usually guarantee, since physical ownership of a work is distinct from ownership of the intellectual property rights therein. So it's typically appropriate for the lender to shift that risk back to the museum to do its own clearance on rights and reproductions. The reason I bring this up at all in the context of international loan exhibitions is because given the application of Bern and other countries' copyright regimes to these kinds of uses of images abroad, U.S. lenders are really even in less of a stable position to say what may or may not be lawful. So that's definitely a risk to keep an eye on the allocation of. Um, next is dispute resolu resolution. Um, we talked about this a little bit in the context of the insurance policy, but the actual loan contract is a separate beast. Um, sometimes U.S.-based lenders have the leverage to negotiate for application of the law of their home jurisdiction, but again, when a foreign institution is state-run, that borrower may not have the flexibility to agree to be governed by a different law. I've had this come up, for example, with a museum in Monaco, which could only be governed by Monegasque law, which is 
not necessarily something your New York client is going to want to delve into. Um, so when that happens, the lender really has to engage in sort of a balancing act. You have to look at what's the applicable law of the foreign jurisdiction and what does their court system look like and what would it mean for your client to be hailed into a dispute there. But there may be commercial reasons why the client's willing to take on that risk. They may have a lot of faith in the museum and the relationship and the museum standard of care, and they may think it's really unlikely that a dispute is going to arise. And there may be commercial benefits to including the work in the loan. It's considered to be value enhancing, or it may create publicity in advance of a contemplated sale. So that, that ultimately ends up being a commercial decision for the lender. Um, I'm going to skip over commercial negotiation points just in the interest of time. One other contract provision I'll mention that's not a part of my slides at all, but Derek sort of triggered this for me with his mention of coronavirus, um, is force majeure. And Derek referenced very you know, classical force majeure language, act of God. I think in this coronavirus age, lenders act and borrowers actually need to be thinking more specifically about force majeure. Um, sometimes there's language about pandemics and epidemics, but those are very specific World Health Organization classifications. So I've had a couple of requests from art industry clients lately to beef up their force majeure language to include outbreaks of disease or other health and safety risks. So just something to have on your radar. Okay, moving on to domestic borrowers, U.S.-based borrowing institutions. The risk issues are all the same. If they look the same, that's because they're the same, but we're just going to talk about them from the opposite perspective. So with respect to loss and damage liability, um, as I previously mentioned, institutional borrowers are typically loath to agree to absolute liability and will only do so if it's really critical to secure a linchpin of the exhibition. This is the case for U.S. institutions, and I'll note that until the past few years, the requests for absolute liability were really predominantly coming from lenders located abroad, so they were relatively few in number and easier for the institutions to address within their budget. Now we have private U.S. lenders requesting absolute liability from U.S. institutions, and so it's really changed the landscape and the tolerance on that issue. A couple of other notes on U.S. institutional insurance. U.S. nonprofit tax-exempt organizational borrowers can apply to the U.S. government's Arts and Artifacts Indemnity Program, which is administered by the NEA. Um, the program applies to art, artifacts, decorative objects, rare documents, books, and, and most other things, although there are a number of media-based exclusions. There are two criteria. The object itself must have educational, cultural, historic, or scientific value, and the exhibition must be in the national interest. Um, there's, oop, there's coverage for an exhibition up to $1.8 billion. There's a biannual cycle for application in September and in March, so it actually requires a borrowing institution to really do some you know, legwork ahead of time and, and have its exhibitions planned out far in advance, as well as commitments from its lenders. Some museums combine coverage under the U.S. program with commercial coverage. And foreign borrowers sometimes have a hard time understanding some of the mechanical differences between those two coverage schemes. So, for example, a commercial insurer will often issue a COI, a certificate of insurance, to the lender, whereas under the national program, the government will not issue a COI to an individual lender. The museum really has to receive any compensation on, for the benefit of the lender and make the claim on the lender's behalf as well. Um, okay. 
import status. Um, interestingly, import is sort of less of a concern in the U.S. because Chapter 97 of our harmonized tariff schedule provides for most artwork to be imported duty-free. That said, items that are valued above $2,500 are subject to certain paperwork. So that's the CBP 7523 on the screen. And recent Trump administration special tariffs on works of art originating from China, as well as lithos and photos from Germany and the UK, among others, raise the same concerns we talked about with property going in the other direction. That is to say, if you want to avoid the tariff by importing something for temporary exhibition-only status, then you need to be mindful that you're not also selling it while it's here. Immunity from seizure, um, loans of objects from collections of foreign governments or foreign state museums made to U.S. government or U.S. nonprofit cultural or educational institutions, so not private borrowers like galleries who are undertaking exhibitions, but museums, may qualify for immunity from seizure under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and the Foreign Cultural Exchange Jurisdictional Immunity Clarification Act. Um, I suspect that the second panel may get into this as well, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I'll note that the requirements for application here are very similar to the National Indemnity Program, which is to say that the object must be of cultural significance, the loan must be in, the exhibition must be in the public interest, and then what happens is that once that application has been submitted to the State Department, this fascinating federal register notice gets published, and it just sort of says the Department of State has determined that these objects are of cultural significance. So this one that's on the screen is from the um, ongoing Whitney Vita Americana exhibition. Um, logistics standard of care security. Again, we can breeze right over this because U.S. institutions who are borrowing have all the same concerns expressed by their foreign lenders as U.S. lenders have expectations of foreign institutions. In the U.S., we have some great professional organizations, professional accreditations like AAM that set forth standards for things like climactic controls. Um, repro rights, again, it's just the mirror image. Um, U.S. Council for Domestic Institutions, in addition to considering whether they have clearance to include things in catalog reproductions, will also need to consider the application of U.S.-specific laws like Trademark and Lanham Act concerns in the context of sales and merchandising. And then finally, uh, the flip side of dispute resolution is that U.S. museums will typically prefer for disputes to be governed by the law of their home jurisdiction. And in some cases, including where they're a U.S. government institution, like the Smithsonian, they may only be permitted to agree to resolution in a particular forum. For the Smithsonian institutions, including the Cooper Hewitt here in New York City, the, um, the only court that they can adjudicate claims in is the Court of Federal Claims. So in those cases, again, the lender, the, the lender has to take into account that balancing analysis of is it worth, that, worth it to them to assume the risk of um, having a dispute governed in, a, in our jurisdiction um, in exchange for the benefits they're receiving in exchange for the loan. Okay. So thanks for that whirlwind. Thank you so much, Megan. I think that was a terrific um, overview. And our next panelist is Rudy Capaldeo. Rudy is a partner at Charles Russell Speechley's in the United Kingdom and advises a broad range of international clients 
from private collectors and artists through to art galleries and financial institutions. His practice is predominantly commercial-based, such as the purchase and sale of artworks, luxury asset financing, and the protection of intellectual property. He also advises clients from the classic car and fine wine worlds. So we welcome Rudy today. Thanks very much to, to Megan and to Derek. Um, I think we're probably going to cross over an awful lot on a lot of the things that we're going to, to say. But my perspective, and I've been asked today, is to talk about um, sort of the museum's perspective and the international museum's perspective. And obviously, being a UK lawyer, I'll be focusing largely on um, UK law and UK issues. Um, so I'll give a quick run through of what the sort of issues, obviously, that museums need to think about. And forgive me if there's a little bit of repetition um, with some of the other um, talks that are coming and have been. Um, the, I thought I'd start with this, some toilet humor um, to, to bring it down a level. Um, so obviously, that's a, a gold toilet that was in um, Blenheim Palace. Um, and that's the one that was the same in Freeze um, a couple of years ago that then it appeared in Blenheim Palace and was stolen. Um, the morning of the exhibition, an 18 carat, a um, couple of tons, um, pretty, pretty hefty, plumbed in functioning gold toilet um, by the artist Maurizio Catalan, who also um, did that banana at Art Basel, which uh, Miami, which I'm sure you all saw as well. Um, it's gone, it hasn't come back, um, and obviously it was a bit embarrassing. Um, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty messy job looking, looking for it and going after it, I'm sure, um, but uh, yeah, not, not been found. And um, I guess why would a borrower lend to an institution when there are these sorts of high-profile um, risks? Um, interestingly, there was a freedom of information um, request back in 2016 about um, how many items had been damaged at national museums in the last 10 years um, before that um, request, and it was found that 966 works were recorded as damaged by the British Museum, the V&A, the Tate, the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery, the Science Museum, and the Imperial Moor Museum. And among those casualties were works by Barbara Hepworth, Anish Kapoor, Mark Rothko, Damien Hirst, um, Jeff Koons, Starley, and also Roman and Greek marbles. Um, the damage included um, staff tripping over the artwork in the dark, um, children getting sticky hands on canvases or breaking and damaging exhibits when permitted to interact with them, and in one case, um, someone leaked a tin of free bentos soup um, on a canvas uh, of soup, sort of um, like Baxter's Campbell's soup, Heinz, Heinz soup on the, on the canvas. I imagine they were having their lunch while they were looking at it. Um, also, catering staff um, setting up for an event. And someone in, at the V&A in 2008, a waiter knocked off a prong of a 1622 marble Neptune and Triton trident with a, uh, with a crate of wine glasses. So... Um, this stuff does obviously happen, and the worst does unfortunately happen from time to time. Um, so what are the duties, I guess, of a, of a museum? Um, well, at common law, a borrowing institution has a general duty to take such care as is reasonable in all the circumstances. The practical operation of this duty in a given case depends on the normal criteria by which a Bailey's precautions are measured. For example, the nature, the value and portability of the object, the place where it's to be kept, 
the character of the borrower and any express undertaking given to the lender. It need hardly be said that loans of works of art stand high within the upper reaches of the scale and exact a heavy measure of responsibility. What may be reasonable care in regard to mass-produced cars or personal luggage may well be insufficient in relation to pictures or sculptures. There's not an awful lot of case law on the point, um, and most, um, and in fact, cases involving major national institutions are virtually non-existent. And I think that probably reflects both the low level of misadventures, despite those 966 incidents I've mentioned, um, and also the reluctance to litigate when something goes wrong. Um, borrowers' duties include a... Sorry. Thanks. Thanks. Um, borrowers' duties include a duty to take reasonable care to guard against foreseeable acts by members of the public, um, from a visitor leaning over a barrier and inadvertently coming into contact with the, to, with the work to vandalism and other malicious conduct. Um, I've got a picture there of a, a Polish chap, a young Polish chap. Um, you'll forgive my pronunciation. Um, he was called Wolzemirz Umaniek, um, and he vandalized a Rothko work at the Tate Museum. Um, he was jailed, actually, for two years uh, for criminal damage, and at 3.25 p.m. In, in, on one afternoon, he went up to... Rothko's Seagram murals, this particular painting was called Black on Maroon, took out a brush and some black paint and wrote that bit of graffiti there, his name along with a potential piece of yellowism. Um, the damage was estimated at 200,000 and took 20 months to restore. Um, and after it was discovered, the gallery was put into operation shutdown with people prevented from leaving or entering the building. Um, and the incident led to galleries reviewing security arrangements at a cost to themselves and obviously the taxpayer if they're a national institution. And the judge said that the effects of the, those security reviews was to distance the public from the works of art they had come to enjoy. So um, not, 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 a, not a happy ending for the public, when, I guess, when these, when these things happen. Not only is the artwork lost, but then there's a decreased interaction with the artwork. Um, there's also a duty... Um, is there a duty to insure? Well, we've, Megan's brilliantly discussed insurance, and I'm also going to touch on it a little bit, but I won't double up too much. Um, actually, surprisingly, um, under common law, there's no general duty for a bailey to insure unless it's implied by custom within a particular trade or locality. Um, there's obviously evidence that art loans are a special case. Um, under most loans, the responsibility for insurance is specifically allocated by the loan agreements, and the, the agreement will normally put both the cost and the administrative burden on um, arranging insurance on the borrower. Um, where something goes wrong, I guess what, what obligations does a borrowing institution have to take reasonable steps to safeguard the object? Well, they must usually notify the lender as soon as possible, and usually these things are also set out in the standard loan agreements. Um, the duty may also extend to taking proper precautions to safeguard the lender's position in the event of a third-party claim to the goods. Um, and many standard loan terms require the lender to be instantly notified of any misadventure affecting the work. Um, most extraordinary hazards are covered by insurance, and the cost of preemptive or remedial measures will be borne by the borrower's insurer. However, certain exclusions do apply, such as events of war and, um, as we were talking, force majeure, strikes, riots, and civil commotions. So a prudent lender would take care to see that adequate cover was in place for those uninsured events. Um, what happens if uh, maybe a, a, a deliberate in-house damage or theft occurs? Well, in the museum world, that hardly touch word ever really happens. Um, it's obviously theoretically possible, and in commercial bailment cases, um, these, these things do pop up from time to time, and it's found that a borrower is answerable for that, um, that employee's theft of the object or any act of a malicious damage. 
Um, when something goes wrong, um, there's a heavy burden of proof on a borrower to counter any allegations of its breach of its duty of care. Um, if uh, on proof that a borrower object has been destroyed, damaged, stolen, or lost while in the borrower's possession, the borrower must compensate the lender unless it can show that appropriate standards of care were taken um, or any failure to take that standard did not cause or contribute to the misadventure. Um, I've been helping a national institution in the UK recently um, with regards to a, um, an artwork that's had some f a financial interest um, over it. Um, so that adds an extra layer of complication when you have a lender um, that has a financial interest that's going to a museum. Um, they will insist that the museum signs up to a pledge letter or a bailment agreement with them um, or a letter of interment to um, make sure that they listen to the lender over the, any rights or claims that the owner may have. Um, and there's usually quite um, little room to negotiate for the institution if, um, in this particular case, it was a very last-minute um, revelation that was brought to their attention um, because they'd been liaising directly with the owner. Um, and they'd already gone ahead and planned, as Derek was saying um, earlier, making this particular work the very center of their exhibition. So it was on the, it's on all the catalogs, it's on all the publication, on all the, the PR, um, absolutely everything. So in terms of their own negotiating position, it's, um, it's, they're in a bit of a sticky, sticky situation and they're going to have to probably go along with most of the, the, the lenders, um, both the financial lender and the owner's um, demands. Um, insurance, I'm not going to um, repeat too much. Um, obviously, insurance is a, a, an, alternative, um, an alternative to some forms of state or publicly funded indemnities. Um, English loan agreements invariably stipulate that the insurance valuation is that advanced by the lender. Um, there sometimes is a dispute around um, valuation. That particular picture um, is the portrait of Jan Six um, by, by Rembrandt. Um, it, on the grapevine, I heard um, that it was very difficult to insure. Um, there was a real dispute around the, the valuation. The owner wanted uh, 400 million um, on that particular picture, and the state indemnity didn't want to go up to that particular level. And um, also, Lloyd's Insurance were um, very unhappy to to um, go up to that particular level. This was before the days of Salvador Mundi, and um, this was about five or six years ago. Um, in instances where there is a dispute, and I come on this onto the next slide, um, there is a, a mechanism through which you can go to uh, an arbiter, um, at the Department of National Heritage, um, with regards to state indemnity, will look at the valuation and come up with what's reasonable. In this particular case, a similar sort of circumstance had happened to the matter I was talking about earlier, where this particular picture was used as the poster boy for the whole exhibition. So um, a solution was found, and insurance um, coverage was given to the owner, 400 million, but it was um, apparently very, very close to the bone whether it would make it or not. Um, obviously, uh, um, the deposit of documents, a lender will often want their certificate of insurance to, um, to be provided to them or a copy to be provided to them. Um, and insurance is often described as uh, nail to nail. Um, on the certificate of insurance, I've just jumped a point, sorry. Um, usually the lender will ensure that they um, have primary interest, obviously, in the insurance proceeds. They'll either be the sole loss pay or first loss pay or the additional insured, and that will need to be noted on the policy. 
Um, nail to nail, what does that really mean? Well, it will cover the work from its removal from its place of hanging in preparation from travel to the lender until after it's been condition checked on its return to the lender's premises. Um, it's not actually literal, um, of the, obviously where it's been from, from where it's was previously hung to going back to where it was hung. Um, and then with regards to lenders insurance, as Megan said, sometimes um, it's just easier for the lenders insurance to remain in place um, and the borrowers will invariably accept that, though there's usually arguments around um, the, the amount of the coverage that needs to be paid um, if, if, the, um, if there's no real change in premium cover. It can be quite a complicated calculation, as Megan said. Um, state indemnity. So the UK, um, as well as a number of other um, countries, including the US, Australia, New Zealand, France, Netherlands, and others, um, have um, government underwritten indemnity schemes. Um, the UK's is governed uh, by uh, the, um, Section 16 of the National Heritage Act, 1980. Um, it only applies to qualifying institutions and those comprise of museums, galleries, libraries, and other institutions which are specified in Section 16 of the Act, or for which there is a provision for approval as a qualifying institution. Um, it only applies to objects loaned by private owners, and those private owners have to be private persons, bodies, or institutions from abroad or it can be a private person in the UK. Evaluation will need to be agreed for the individual object before a loan is accepted. Normally, the lender's valuation is um, usually accepted, but as I say, in regards to that Yan 6 case, um, if no agreement can be reached, the Department of National Heritage can refer the matter to an independent arbitrator. Um, indemnity is usually conditional upon it, being a term of the loan agreement that no restoration or conservation work is carried out on the object without the owner's consent. Um, the borrower is usually excluded from liability for war, negligence, and other force majeure matters. Um, the condition of the object at the time of the loan um, is noted, um, and no deterioration is usually accepted unless it's obviously been caused by um, loss or damage um, that's been suffered during the time of the loan. Pre-approved restoration or conservation is also excluded if it was approved by the owner, um, and also any third-party claims of ownership of the object to... Um, and the indemnity essentially covers loss of the object or damage to it, um, plus costs of reasonable repairs. Um, it also doesn't allow any um, waiver of subrogation. The Secretary of State can take over and conduct for his own benefit any action that it wants to take against any person for damages in respect of that loss or damage. And when an object is later recovered, the owner must immediately repay the sum. The picture there was um, a picture by Sir Stanley Spencer, and in 2012, it was stolen from this um, Stanley Spencer Museum. It was worth about a million pounds. Thieves broke in through the window. They tried to take the first picture. They couldn't get that. They tried to take the second one, and they managed to remove it from the gilt frame. Um, the owners received a million pounds, because um, that's what it was uh, covered as. Um, and then, um, during a drug raid on a property in London, a 28-year-old man pled guilty because the police found the picture under his bed. Um, he was also charged with conspiracy supply class A drugs as well. Um, and they returned the work to the owners, and the owners had to give the money back. Um, I guess this is the only time that's ever happened, actually, under the government um, uh, indemnity scheme, that a work has been recovered after a payment's gone out. And I guess the owners, I guess the government were grateful, and the owners had the money to pay it back, because I probably would have gone off and had a lovely holiday with the £1 million and... Um, struggle to pay that back perhaps straight away because it was five years later that it was recovered. Um, shipping, um, I'll try and be quick here. Um, well, 
As Megan said, when importing into um, foreign countries, um, there can sometimes be a, an import um, or customs charge. In the UK and in the EU, there is import VAT, um, and that's normally chargeable unless a particular exemption applies. Artworks generally cover for a lower rate of 5%, but um, other EU countries charge um, sometimes much more. Um, Hungary charges as much as 27%. Once you pay that import rate, you're then within free circulation within the EU. Um, there are, though, reliefs, temporary admission relief, um, Megan says ATA carnets, but um, for institutions, national institutions, um, there's something called uh, the NIRU, or you seek NIRU approval. Well, what, what is that? Well, that is an EU um, piece of legislation um, that has, uh, allows museums to bring in objects under quite strict um, circumstances and terms to have them on display for um, public benefit, and there's no charge to the owner of that work um, for bringing them into the, into the UK. Um, the legislation is quite vague. Um, it says that um, the, it triggers an import VAT charge if there's any movement of the uh, artwork um, without um, prior approval from the national, in, um, national association that grants it. In this case, it's HMRC. Um, and there's no word for what really transfer means um, with regards to transferring uh, the physical um, owner, the physical object from one person to another. It could be to a shipper. It could be obviously a sale. It would definitely trigger it. Um, and uh, it's not been, um, as far as I'm aware, tested in, in any, any court process as yet. Um, with Brexit coming up, um, there was concern whether this... Uh, the status, um, because once it's in the UK, it can then use, go to another um, approved institution within the, within the Europe or within the UK, um, and then not trigger the import VAT. Um, whether that would still apply, um, that's still to be discussed, and we're not quite sure what will happen once we fall off the cliff, maybe at the end of the year. But at the moment, there's a transition arrangement in place which um, allows uh, the EU to still recognise um, Nairu, um, despite us having left. Um, as I say, immunity from seizure, I, I won't cover that because it's pretty much the, the next person's topic, um, the next group's topic, but the UK has um, an immunity from seizure regime um, that they brought into place in 2007, um, and specifically for this particular um, exhibition, which was um, from Russia, um, and it was from Russia to France, I think it was, um, and it was an amazing collection of works at the Royal Academy, um, and Russia had particularly had, had their fingers burnt in Switzerland a few years earlier and were very concerned that um, there may be a number of claims if they brought all these wonderful works from the Pushkin Museum and other museums in Russia to the UK. Um, so this was rushed through legislation um, and the conditions that I've set out there are the conditions um, that need to be met to uh, allow immunity from seizure to be um, approved. Um, and that's a, a quick canter through. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rudy. Our next panelist is Jonathan Halpern. Jonathan is the chair of the New York City Bar Committee's European Affairs Committee, so worked together to put this event on this evening. Jonathan is also the par a partner and experienced litigation attorney in Holland and Knight's white-collar defense and investigations practiced here in New York. Jonathan?
Thank you very much, uh, Amanda, and thank you all for your interest and for being here tonight um, on a number of different topics that touch on uh, international uh, art exhibits and loans. Um, my perspective will be a, a little bit different, and that is uh, touching on select issues uh, from the EU and now UK, separate from the EU perspective, um, and what issues are implicated. And the vehicles through which I uh, will touch on to uh, talk about uh, these perspectives are two EU regulations um, and one EU directive. Um, they are specifically one on the introduction and import of cultural goods, um, the return of cultural objects uh, to, uh, that have been uh, unlawfully removed from any grieved EU member nation. Um, and the third is the most recent money laundering directive. Um, in turn, um, I think these three legislative or regulatory and directive initiatives implicate kind of larger themes for the international art world and the art world here in, in the U.S. Um, but they also tell us something also about the EU and about what uh, what art means and its heritage. Um, and these are three essentially uh, separate principles. One uh, is to protect and honor the cultural heritage of the cultural goods. Um, two is also uh, to promote the interest of the EU because that's what the EU does, although it's short one party now. Um, and finally, it recognizes uh, the seriousness and the increasing urgency of uh, the need to fully address the heightened risks of money laundering and terrorist financing. And what it does is impose greater obligations on a greater number of players in the art world universe to address and resolve and minimize those risks. Um, I wanted to start out uh, because I think especially in today's times, um, I, I wanted to uh, essentially read just a section of the declaration of this is um, the EU's regulation on the introduction and the um, import of cultural goods. Um, this became effective. Um, it, was, it was passed last April of 2019, became effective uh, in June, and in typical kind of EU fashion gets rolled out over a series of, um, of years and periods. Um, but when it talks about cultural goods, it says it's a part of cultural heritage and often of major cultural, artistic, historical, and scientific importance. Cultural heritage constitutes one of the basic elements of civilization, having inter alia symbolic value and forming part of the cultural memory of humankind. It enriches the cultural life of all peoples and unites peoples through shared memory, knowledge, and development of civilization. It should therefore be protected from unlawful appropriation and pillage. And I think that's one of the motivators for this regulation um, and it really, I think, gives us a time to pause and think about 
uh, the purpose of shared uh, uh, mutual uh, uh, museum uh, exhibitions and loans and what you know kind of binds us um, together through the great work um, wherever wherever we are um, so um, what does this do as we say it um, the the regulation prohibits the introduction into the EU of cultural goods that were unlawfully exported from third countries, meaning non-EU member nations, um, especially those affected by uh, armed conflict, uh, in particular where terrorist or other criminal organizations have been trading. And part of the EU rationale is those are people who are most vulnerable in those sorts of uh, areas, and um, that's where they're vulnerable to illicit trading and looting and pillaging. Um, so the objectives include safeguarding humanity's cultural heritage, protecting against illicit trade uh, and loss of destruction, and preventing terrorist financing and money laundering through, through the sale of pillaged items to purchasers in the EU. I might say that the regulation kind of goes beyond that, as we'll as we'll see, um, and it's just not limited to items that have been looted, pillaged, stolen. Um, and so there's kind of a tension in the, in the regulation, but the animating principle, I think, is, an, is a decent, honorable one, and that is to protect uh, these, these items. And what is a cultural good? Um, as it's defined in the regulation, any item of importance for archaeology, prehistory, history, literature, art, or science. Very broad. Uh, the regulation spells out in three different sections of an annex to the regulation uh, different categories of cultural goods. And depending upon which category fits in, um, there, there are other requirements or restrictions uh, for for the use um, of such goods. So examples here, very broad in the first, which would be Annex A, pictures, paintings, drawings by hand, um, statues, uh, original gravings, prints, uh, really anything that you think of broadly um, in an artistic, historical uh, framework would be captured by cultural goods. Uh, there are, as I mentioned, restrictions, um, and the, the major restriction is a prohibition, and this is the core of this particular regulation, and that is that the introduction of cultural goods is defined as the entry into customs territory of the EU. And you'll, for those of you who are more familiar with EU regulations, and there are a series of them that get uh, it's kind of an accretive process. Um, they talk about the customs territory. In any event, the entry into the EU, effectively, is prohibited where goods were removed from the territory of the country where they were created or discovered in, violations, uh, in violation of the laws and the regulations of that country. Um, now, this whole regulation does not apply to cultural goods which were either created or discovered in the customs territory of the Union, of the EU. So it's as if it's one member nation, um, all of, of one. There's a separate uh, regulation that we'll turn to, at least some of the elements of it, uh, that gives relief to a member nation against uh, another if it uh, contends that 
an, an object, a uh, cultural good, uh, was removed illegally under its laws or regulations. Um, so there are certain restrictions and requirements apart from the prohibition. If a cultural good falls into certain categories, um, that either a li- an import license or an importer statement uh, is required. Um, and so uh, what is import of identified non-union cultural goods, those cultural goods coming from outside of the EU, uh, which, which what does that mean? It's the release and the free circulation or placement under special procedures. Um, the free placement is for the movement and commerce within the EU. And then these special procedures or certain storage, specific use, there are technical uses for customs warehousing, for example, where there are no imports or duties that are imposed um, upon the immediate entry, and it's kind of a holding pattern. Um, and so inward processing applies to manufacturing or repair operations in the EU. So um, an import license is required when you're importing these certain uh, cultural goods, uh, and what for what categories? They're products of uh, archaeological digs, um, excavations, and certain elements of what they call the language dismembered archaeological sites uh, more than 250 years old. Um, And some other details are issued by kind of the competent authorities of each member state. Um, There's validity, or at least it's treated as valid throughout the EU. Um, However, it's not to be construed as evidence of licit or legal provenance of ownership of the subject cultural goods. That's a separate issue that the EU kind of deftly put to the side. Uh, There are certain exceptions that are a little technical, but essentially if you can't figure it out and you know the country that had this cultural good for the last five years uh, and it was there not to be transported in and out, but Um, in good faith and with documentation could not identify the provenance, the the origin or the discovery of the item, Um, there is is an exception. Still, uh, there's documentary support uh, that's that's required. Um, The less restrictive requirement is that of an importer statement, um, and that would cover pictures, paintings, drawings, and that's required for those uh, more than 200 years, years old um, to be submitted through an electronic system that's getting very um, extensive, uh, will be rolled out over a number of years. Uh, there are various uh, declarations of the holder of goods that's required in documented descriptions as well. Um, important are the general exemptions from import license or importer statement. Um, Again, it does not apply to cultural goods which were either created or discovered uh, in the EU. Uh, For also cultural goods that are return goods, and there's a definition of what what that means. Uh, It also doesn't apply for goods that come in for safekeeping, exclusively for safekeeping. Uh, But there there has to be an intent to return them to the rightful uh, member nation as, as, as soon as practicable, essentially at the appropriate time. Um, for particular relevance here, uh, what's excluded is the temporary admission 
of cultural goods for educational purposes, science, science uh, exhibitions, performing arts, or where there's cooperation museum to museum. Um, and the EU regulation makes a special note. They don't talk about, for this particular provision, the introduction or the import, the term they use is temporary admission. And uh, what does not apply is just the restriction that requires an, uh, an importer statement or an importer license. Um, just that provision doesn't apply to the temporary admission of artworks. So what that means, or you derive from that, is that if such works, uh, the removal of which would be illegal under the non-EU nation law or re regulations, um, that would not be excluded. Um, and so that would be an issue for uh, museums and exhibitions as well. Um, again, as a practical matter, what does this apply to? It's non-EU uh, nations as um, the, what I'll call the issuer or exporter of the artwork on loan. Um, we have some effective dates of regulation. As they say, this, this rolls out over a period of, of time. Um, there are also going to be certain uh, penalties that uh, will be required to submit it at the end of the year uh, to ensure that they're not false statements that are made in connection uh, with the submission of uh, an importer's statement or to obtain um, a license. Um, so that's the first EU regulation, uh, broadly on the introduction import of uh, cultural objects. It just highlights certain elements um, as they relate to uh, international loans and exhibitions. Um, the second is the EU regulation on the return of cultural objects unlawfully removed from the territory of a member state. Um, so here are some of the highlights. Uh, like the first EU uh, regulation passed by a European Parliament and Council, um, it applies to cultural objects unlawfully removed on or after January 1, 1993. Uh, Cultural object has a little bit different of a definition here, uh, as characterized by a member state as among, quote, national treasures possessing artistic, historic, or archaeological value um, as further defined. Um, and what this does, this particular regulation, uh, it establishes procedures for member states to obtain the return of cultural objects uh, that they maintain had been uh, unlawfully removed, um, and that is removed in breach of that member state's own particular rules um, or prior EU uh, regulation, um, or not returned as the end of the lawful uh, term of the loan or if otherwise in breach um, of a removal condition. So there are procedures that authorizes one member uh, nation, the requesting state to initiate return proceedings in the appropriate court of the requested member state. Um, however, proceedings are disallowed um, if the removal is not unlawful when these removal proceedings uh, are initiated. Um, again, uh, ownership is, is really a separate issue, that is ownership of the cultural object. 
Um, and that's governed by the law of the requesting member state after the object has been returned. Um, in not, not unsurprising, uh, as an EU regulation, this particular uh, authority provides no relief uh, for the requesting non-member state. Um, and that may be a little difficult. There are other conventions um, and treaties, but um, not, not, you won't find it in that particular regulation. Finally, the third uh, it, legislative initiative here is the fifth money laundering directive. You know there were four previous ones. They said this is an accretive process. Uh, it builds on one another. Um, this has an implementation date just recently, just January 10th. 2020, again adopted uh, by the Parliament and Council. Um, so they talk about obliged entities, uh, those that are required to engage in due diligence and undertake um, other um, obligations to address money laundering issues and risks. Um, and so here um, they've expanded this universe uh, to players in the art world. Uh, and it's quoting from the directive here, persons trading or acting as intermediaries in the trade of works of art, including when this is carried out by art galleries and auction houses, where the value of individual or series of linked transactions um, is, in euros, uh, 10,000 or more. Uh, and the second component of this is that persons storing, trading, or acting as intermediaries in the trade of works of art when this is carried out by free ports where the value of individual or the linked transactions is 10,000 euros or more. Um, so dealers, brokers, traders uh, would imposed on this. Um, the UK has effectively adopted this EU directive um, and among other obligations is that to implicate, excuse me, implement risk-based financial risk programs to identify and address AML anti-money laundering issues. Um, there is in the higher risk cases uh, an enhanced customer due diligence by these obliged um, uh, entities. Um, to make sure that they manage and they mitigate those risks appropriately, uh, that they identify the beneficial owner. Who's involved here? Who is the true owner? Um, so there's got to be greater transparency, and the obligation is on each player in the chain of an, of an art transaction. Um, this includes uh, information will be included in a register that's created and then disclosed to those uh, having a legitimate interest, while also balancing against the tension of GDPR and other privacy interests. Um, this is a, you know, this is always a, a big issue that's been lurking. I mean, in the United States, obviously, with kind of my background, both as a former federal prosecutor and on the defense side, um, there is a, a, a list of uh, financial institution uh, components. Um, from funds and banks um, and trusts and investment advisors, and the list gets longer and longer. And even recently, legislation was introduced um, that uh, added to the definition of financial institution to include dealers of art uh, and antiquities. 
Um, that's not quite the law yet, but it doesn't absolve anyone in this field from acting appropriately to identify uh, and affirmatively address the risk through uh, strong compliance programs. Um, and so here the EU is uh, out ahead of us in the United States, um, but I think it, it portends kind of the, the next phase, the next obligations. We've already seen it beyond financial institutions, but in the real estate world and industry, where they have to pierce LLCs um, to identify particular owners. I also think one other um, part of this is that not just on dealers and brokers and galleries and auction houses, but also I think one trend will be for museums to um, dig down a little deeper to identify donors. Um, we've seen that in the press recently with a number of the issues that have come out um, in both investigations and criminal matters. So um, I think that's where we're going, and those are some of the issues that implicated from a European perspective. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jonathan. So we're going to take a 15-minute break, but I have a few questions, and we're going to take a few audience questions. Um, one of the... What Jonathan mentioned I think is really interesting, and I think one point to note is that museums are also buyers and sellers um, themselves. And so a question I have for Rudy is, have you seen with the new AML directives, have museums who, with their boards and with their fiduciary duties, have they been putting in place their own AML procedures, not just for the, exception, exception, um, the acceptance of gifts, but also for deaccessioning or when they have to sell pieces or when they're buying pieces um, with their, their committees? Have you seen any movement? Um, yeah. we. So deaccessioning doesn't happen an awful lot in the in the UK, um, but um, in terms of AML policy, um, for museums, we haven't actually yet been been instructed by uh, museums to being being perfectly frank about um, about implementing a policy. We have by lots of galleries and lots of dealers, given that they are obviously involved um, in those day-to-day -day transactions. Um, museums generally already have pretty good um, due diligence um, procedures and policies in place, which they have to go through to identify who owners are. Um, there's obviously a PR risk, um, an enormous PR risk to them to, to get that sort of thing wrong and to not have checked who um, is the underlying beneficial owner of a of a gift um, or of, an, of a work. And um, whilst obviously there is a, still a degree of confidentiality within the art world um, for museum purchases, um, yeah, we will, we will naturally have to see them comply with this um, legislation. In the UK, um, whilst the law kicked off on the 10th of January, um, it's rather peculiar. HMRC said that they would um, not be very strict about enforcing it for the first few months whilst everyone tried to get their ducks um, in a row, um, but they expect um, everyone to be completely up and running by the time they have register with HMRC, which is going to be by the 10th of January next year. Interesting. And I think um, as the museums in the UK are rolling this out, I think US museums should also be considering these too as they sell and buy and transact with European counterparties. So really interesting, a lot to happen. Um, one other thing I thought was interesting, Jonathan, from your last presentation was how you started off with commenting about how the new re the regulation on cultural property was designed to bring 
states together and to protect these other states. And when we look at what the U.S. is doing with the China tariffs that Megan touched upon, I mean, it's the complete opposite, right? We're saying if you're bring, we're going to bring in things for loan in the United States that are China origin, you're going to be slapped with a tariff. So we're doing completely opposite um, objectives here. I just wanted to know if Megan or you wanted to comment on, on what you see in terms of trends with this. Are we going to be working together more? Or are we going to be kind of more isolationist? Well, I think it's a, it's a great it's a great insight. Um, I don't I don't can't can't accurately predict, but I think there's a, there's a tension here, and I think what the EU uh, regulations are trying to do is to front those those tensions um, and to try to try to address them. Um, um, but I don't think I mean the the tariff issue is something that's very I think separate and other regulations of the EU from. Uh, from this, here it's really about uh, protecting the in integrity of the, and the cultural heritage of these objects, but but also realizing that there are uh, serious responsibilities uh, that that accompany those in the in the art world, um, and I think museums as as well. But I think it'll play out over the next uh, decade. Can I? Yeah, really, please. I guess from the from. I guess in, the, in Britain we had a quite a good example recently where um, despite bad relations between ourselves and Russia, um, culture um, was used and soft power was used as a way to try and build those bridges. Um, so we'd lent, the British Museum lent um, their Elgin marbles to the Hermitage um, whilst it, during a particularly difficult political time. Parthenon marbles. Parthenon marbles. Yeah, sorry, I do. Thank you very much. Um, to the Hermitage, um, which was... Uh, surprising at the time, but I guess shows the power of museum and cultures to try and overcome um, those sorts of very difficult political situations. We hope that our, the, the China tariffs are taken away, but they haven't. Megan, quick question for you. I thought it was really insightful when you talked about the provision um, governing law and forum for lenders who are lending to foreign museums. I think a lot of lenders get really concerned about this, and I think your example of Monaco was pretty spot on. Small jurisdiction, really unfamiliar to, let's say, your typical American... Principality. Yeah. Um, so, and I thought it was interesting how you said it's a real commercial balance. Um, sometimes people get even more concerned when they know that the insurance would be also governed by that jurisdiction. Have you ever had experience where you're able to bifurcate the provision where you say, okay, disputes with, between you, museum, and us lender with respect to terms in this agreement will be governed by your local jurisdiction, but anything with your insurance, let's make it U.S.-based, take out a separate policy? Yeah, I, I've seen all permutations of that, and we've even tried the permutation where despite the provision um, in a foreign institution's insurance policy being governed by the foreign law, we've included language in the contract trying to override that, saying, museum, you're agreeing that your insurance policy, any dispute will be governed by, I mean, question enforceability. But I think the insurance is issue is easier to get around because, you know, as we've discussed for many of these high net worth collectors who already have a significant blanket commercial policy in place, keep it in, keeping it on their own insurance isn't a terrible option. Um, so, and that's the one where they have less flex to negotiate it because they're not in contractual privity yet with the insurer. They don't have an ongoing commercial relationship with the insurer. So I would say it's more common um, for the client to 
deal with the situation by maintaining their own insurance or asking the museum to take out a commercial policy that's U.S. based. Um, because the types of disputes that are likely to arise under the agreement are most likely to be damage oriented and loss and you know assessment of diminution and value oriented rather than like a fundamental breach of the museum selling the work that's on loan you know outside their authority. Great. Um, I think that's really insightful and I think that's real practical advice for everyone here. Um, another question, I think it's interesting when you look at the museum reproduction language in their agreements, is there anything that you, because it's usually really broad and really short, is there anything you absolutely like to amend when you see that language, like no commercial reproduction? Yeah, anything about commercial stuff, that would definitely require special permission, and I've had um, lenders who negotiate a percentage of the revenue from those kinds of things. Even though they don't own the copyright, they can take a cut of the museum's cut. So, you know, there's a, that's, that's a big red flag if you see that. Perfect. And last question for me. Rudy, you briefly mentioned bailment agreements. I think as art has become more and more an investment asset, we have so many clients who ha are lending with their art and they have credit facilities. And so in our practice, we see bailment agreements being flipped to museums every day. Um, we don't really think twice about it. But from a museum's perspective, if you ever represent museums, how do they feel when they're given these bailments? Is it, is um, it something so they take almost... It, I guess it depends on who the general counsel is and who, how how familiar they are with these agreements. And as you say, there's I think there's a lot more of it in the in terms of financial um, instruments um, used against art here in the U.S. and there is in the U.K. It's still relatively rare com compared to the U.S. Um, the general counsel I was dealing with just at the weekend with regards to this particular piece um, was very uncomfortable about it, completely uncomfortable about it, and found it um, very unusual, a bit peculiar. He wasn't really aware. Um, which was quite surprising. I mean, the, the museum in question was a very famous museum, but it had a number of different particular um, parts to it. It wasn't just a just a um, just a gallery. It also had other facilities as well. So, um, and his his background was from the from the music world. So it wasn't something that he was particularly familiar with. Um, but was yeah, a U.S. based lender, and you're instructed by yeah. a U.K. institution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, he yeah, so he yeah, he found that very difficult. But I think it's 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 interesting because it's so common with you know SFS and with so many boutiques, and not just like J.P. Morgan. And there, I mean, it's it's something that will continue, and I think it will grow. So it's interesting to hear their response to bailments. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah, is there any are there any audience questions before we wrap up the panel? Yes. Aspect of that. So to repeat the question, it's how much I presume the U.S. government should be involved with international loans to countries like Russia and Eastern Europe. Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, the, there is a whole scheme under OFAC of the Treasury for, as you know, for, for sanctions, and that has to be uh, gone through, uh, you know, diligently, all, uh, almost on a daily basis uh, for individuals, for entities, uh, in addition to, to countries as well. So um, that's one facet of that. Great. Well, thank you all so very much, and a big thank you to our panelists who traveled near and far. So.
We'll reconvene in 15 minutes. Sorry to, to interrupt conversations. My name is Alexander Herman. I'm the Assistant Director of the Institute of Art and Law. Um, you might have seen um, on the program for tonight that, that we are partnering uh, with the Art Law Committee and the European Affairs Committee of the New York City Bar um, for this event. We're delighted to do so. Um, we realize that some or many of you might not know much about our institution, so I thought I'd say a few words about who we are and what we do. Um, we're an educational organization. We're based in the United Kingdom, and we were founded in 1995, and we have three strings to our bow, so education, publishing, and public engagement. Um, on the education front, we run a number of diploma courses in London um, and online courses that are available from anywhere. We also run an LLM program, so a law master's program in art, business, and law at Queen Mary University of London. Um, on the publishing front, uh, we publish a quarterly law journal. So this is our latest uh, issue, December 2019, called Art, Antiquity, and Law. It's now in its 25th year. Um, and we also publish books. We have um, 25 books um, under our banner. And these include commentaries on the main international conventions in this area. Some of you might have seen on your seats, uh, we have a little flyer about, about some of the books that we've published. And more specifically, we're working on a, a very interesting project uh, which coincides with the theme of this evening, uh, which is to update um, our co-founder Norman Palmer's classic book on art loans, which origin originated in 1997. Uh, this will involve a thorough update and promises to be an invaluable resource for all who work in this field, whether as museum or art practitioners or indeed as lawyers. Um, we're happy to have uh, Megan know who's um, involved in this and contributing a chapter in the book, and we have a number of leading uh, scholars and practitioners from around the world looking at the question of art loans and legal uh, implications thereof. So if you're interested in this title, which we are still working on, we don't yet have a publication date, um, one of the flyers on the seats um, gives you a, a web link where you can register your interest, and then we'll let you know as soon as we have a publication date for the next edition of Art Loans. Um, do stay in touch with us at the Institute of Art and Law. Um, you can contact us um, through the information provided on the flyer. So there's this white one, uh, which tells you a little bit about what we do and what the contact details are. Um, you can order books, subscribe to the journal, which I mentioned, um, or indeed become an Institute of Art and Law member. We're also present on social media, so you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and stay in touch that way. And we hope to see some of you in London. So I'd be happy to talk to you a little bit more about our institute um, after the proceedings tonight. I'm now going to shift from that plug to introduce our next panel. So if the first panel was about how we prepare international art exhibitions when everything is hunky-dory and everybody's getting along, the next panel is going to be a little bit darker. Uh, we're going to look at the contentious side of things, what happens when things go wrong in the context of international art exhibitions. 
So we have Anne Rappa, Nicholas O'Donnell, Eleni Policarpu. Uh, I'll introduce them each individually ahead of their talks. They'll each speak for approximately 10 minutes. Um, incredibly, there are no PowerPoints from the speakers. I think this is the first time in the history of the world that we've had a panel uh, without PowerPoints. So this is, this is quite sensational. Um, then we will have a discussion after they're finished their talks um, to look at some recent cases that have arisen in the context of international art loans, and we'll hear from um, each of the experts their take on these things. Um, and at the end, we'll open it up to you um, to ask questions from the floor. So um, the first talk is actually going to come from Eleni Policarpu, who's second to my left. Um, Eleni um, is a solicitor from London. She works at Withers, uh, where she practices in commercial arbitration and is responsible for contentious art matters at the firm, um, while she also has a particular expertise in mediation. She works for high net worth individuals in helping them resolve their art-related disputes. She will be talking to us today about the UK and European perspective on disputes that can arise in the context of international art loans with an eye to immunity from seizure protection in the UK and some countries in Europe as well. So, Eleni, I'll pass the floor to you. Um, so I was asked to focus on immunity from seizure legislation, um, and so I'm going to cover as briefly as I can uh, UK, France, and Germany. Uh, Rudy covered a bit of uh, UK already, but I'll um, repeat. Uh, I hope you don't mind. Um, the one, one thing I was going to say when I was looking at this is that uh, the legislation for immunity from seizure which has now been passed by lots of countries around the world, is different in each country. Um, some legislation focuses on types of artworks. Uh, other legislation focuses on uh, types of institutions. Um, um, what you have to do, the process is different in each country. So if you have one takeaway from this talk, it should be that whenever uh, an, an artwork is being loaned to another country, make sure you check the legislation very carefully. Check whether travel from and to the exhibition is covered by the legislation. Uh, check whether um, uh, what the timelines are because there's always a timeline that you have to make an application beforehand. Um, so, so just focusing on the, on the dispute aspect of this. So the rise of the immunity from seizure legislation came from um, uh, various scenarios where a seizure uh, might arise. Uh, the first scenario is title disputes. So this is where there's a claim as to ownership to an artwork by someone uh, else than the person who consigned it to the museum. Um, so, so, for example, the, the Holocaust claims come under that category. Um, and in the past, people have gone to court and got injunctions um, stopping the artwork from moving until the whole dispute is, is resolved. Uh, second category is creditors of the lenders. So if the lender uh, ha owes someone money and in their own country it's not possible to recover that money, uh, then one way of recovering it is trying to get enforcement of your judgment or your award when the artwork has gone to another country. Uh, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a, in a minute. And the third 
um, category is criminal investigations. Uh, so in, in England, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act allows a policeman to walk into a museum and seize an artwork and take it away uh, as long as he has reasonable grounds uh, that uh, it was obtained as a result of, a, of an offence. And so all of these things put lenders off from uh, international art loans. Um, just uh, going to the UK in a bit more detail, I thought it might be interesting to tell you the story about how the legislation came into, um, into place, because it's fairly recent. It's only 2007 that the UK passed this legislation. And uh, as, as Rudy said, uh, in November 2005, there was a very highly publicized seizure of 54 paintings by Swiss authorities um, um, on their way out from their loan back to Russia. Um, and, and what happened was this, this Swiss company called Noga had, a, had an award against Russia for millions and millions of dollars. Uh, they'd already tried to seize a ship to uh, um, take some military aircraft from a prestigious air show uh, and also to freeze the Russian embassy's bank account in France. But none of that enraged the Russians as much as the seizure of the paintings. Um, uh, the, 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 um, the ambassador, no, sorry, the curator of the Hermitage Museum said, works of art are being used as hostages in trade disputes. And then they went out and said, uh, no Russian artworks will leave Russia ever again uh, unless you give us con concrete guarantees that, um, that you, this won't happen again. And this had a big impact in London, and, and, and um, uh, 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 lots of Russian works were due to go to the VNA, to the Tate, to the Royal Academy. Uh, other incidents happened as well. There was an El Greco exhibition that was going from New York to London, and Romania and Greece removed their, their items from the exhibition because they were worried they might get seized. And so the legislation was passed in a bit of a hurry. Um, um, but it has, I think, been quite effective because as a disputes lawyer, I haven't been instructed recently in relation to claims for um, artworks that, that are on, on loan to the UK. Um, so what, do, what does the legislation say? Uh, it says uh, um, that it gives a blanket immunity from seizure for cultural objects which are loaned from overseas for temporary exhibitions in approved institutions. And the conditions are that the artwork has to reside usually outside the UK. Um, it has to be not owned by a resident in the UK. Import uh, mustn't contravene any law. Um, and we heard a little bit about the new EU directive on import, which might have an impact on this. Um, it has to come to the UK for a temporary public exhibition. And the institution has to publish specific information about the object. So an institution in the UK has to first become an approved institution under the legislation. And if you go to the Arts Council website, you can see the list of approved institutions. And if you click on any one of them, you can see all the information about all the artworks that are there on loan at the moment or are about to come to the UK on loan. And it's quite a useful tip because you can get lots of information about, um, about upcoming exhibitions in much more detail than you do on the main website. So, um, um, so, so um, 
the other thing about the UK legislation, which I think they did in order to compensate for the fact that you couldn't claim anymore, was to allow claimants to ask for more information. Uh, uh, so the, you can ask for information, and if it's not unreasonable, you have to get given an answer. Um, and the timelines are the information has to be published at least four weeks before the exhibition. Uh, it covers travel to and from the exhibition. Uh, it has to be there for maximum a year unless it gets to stay longer for repairs. Um, and if protected under this legislation, as I said, it's a blanket um, immunity for seizure and covers private lenders and public institutions. Um, the one exception is uh, uh, where the UK court is obliged to make a seizure order as a result of the EU directive, for example, uh, as a result of um, uh, international treaties, and one of them is the EU directive that we heard about on the return of unlawfully removed cultural objects of 1993. Um, to my knowledge, this hasn't happened. Uh, it hasn't been tested. And so... Um, the, the, the UK uh, legislation has enabled, I think, uh, the thrive of London as a, as a centre for uh, all these exhibitions because it's so comprehensive. Um, moving on to France, uh, uh, the French story is um, again involving uh, Russian. Uh, in 1993, there was a Matisse exhibition in Paris uh, in which uh, lots of um, paintings owned by um, Russian national museums were exhibited. And the heirs of the Russian collector Sergei Shchukin uh, applied to the French courts for seizure of those works, which had been expropriated by Lenin in, in 1917. Um, the French courts quickly refused that request and said that a sovereign foreign state could not be held accountable before the courts of another state um, for the acts uh, for, of, um, for a public uh, uh, act of a public authority against their subjects, i.e. It's a, it's a Russian matter, please don't involve us. Um, um, but the French authorities panicked when that, that action uh, took place and they thought we have to pass some legislation very quickly and they did. And they also passed a very comprehensive immunity from seizure legislation, which stops uh, any action uh, being taken against cultural objects which are loaned by a foreign power or a foreign public entity uh, to, to the public in France for exhibition. Um, the, the thing that's different between France and the UK is that it, it only uh, protects artworks that come from um, foreign powers or foreign public entities. So no private collectors are covered. And in fact, uh, someone just told me about a seizure as part of the, um, the sweep of the fakes, which has been going on for the last five years. Uh, a French judge has been um, uh, seizing fake artworks and Prince of Liechtenstein had one seized um, last, uh, last year and, I, and that's because he lent it as a private individual, not as a, as a public entity. Um, 
um, the, the procedure is that you get a joint decree from the Ministry of Culture and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and uh, you have to get it at least two months before. And the other difference with the UK is that claimants can file objections, and if they do, uh, uh, then those have to be dealt with before the item arrives. Um, um, some happy news is that the Schuchin artworks actually went back to France in 2017 and they were displayed at the Louis Vuitton Foundation uh, having obtained a beautiful joint decree, so no more seizures for them. Um, and then finally, uh, my final um, uh, quick story is about Germany. The, the German immunity from seizure legislation came about as a result of a uh, an idea for an exhibition that came from the Taiwanese, um, from a Taiwanese diplomat who was based in Bonn, who started concocting this beautiful exhibition with the directors of the art exhibition hall, uh, which was um, to bring the Chinese treasures from the National Palace Museum in Taipei to uh, to Germany. And it took them until 1996 to get the Taiwanese interested. And then this other problem emerged about the Taiwanese being very worried about China seizing the items, which had been originally in the Forbidden Palace in Beijing. Beijing. Uh, so Germany passed its legislation very quickly. And it's, it's the most blanket of all of them because it literally allows a, a, a lender to obtain a guarantee of return uh, and it's 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 a document which uh, can't be challenged once you get it you can't withdraw it can't cancel it uh, um, uh, no right to object and uh, simply says foreign cultural property so uh, covers everything um, uh, so I, I had a case in which my client was the lender uh, to an exhibition in Germany. And uh, when we tried to get this guarantee, uh, it turned out that the item was registered in error on the Lost Art database, which is very, very extensive. Um, and my client, um, even though was reassured that everyone knew it was in error, and there was a timing issue about getting it removed, wasn't happy about letting the item go to Germany. Um, and so I think the immunity from seizure legislation is very, is very effective, very helpful, and allows lenders to, uh, to let their art travel the world and let people see it as much as possible in different contexts. Um, that's all I was going to say. Thank you, thank you very much, Eleni. That was fascinating. Um, we should be mentioned Eleni has to leave because she has to catch a flight back to London, so she, she might duck out. But... Maybe I can ask one question before you do, Eleni. Um, do you think it can ever be necessary or relevant to, to have carve-outs for immunity where certain types of, let's say, sensitive material would not be covered by the immunity, say, Nazi-looted art or indigenous material for certain countries? I, I, I think that the success of the immunity from seizure legislation is that it doesn't have these kind of carve-outs. I know what you're saying, and I think there is, a, there is a, a, a criticism of this legislation because it stops people from their basic right to bring a claim. And as a disputes lawyer, I shouldn't be in favor of, against that even. But, but the reality is that if 
that legislation wasn't as blanket as it is, then people wouldn't allow their artworks to go, and the people who had claims over them wouldn't be any better off either. In fact, by letting the items travel, uh, as Megan said earlier, you can find out information. You know, you pu they, publish, they publicize it, and people who might have a claim over it might find out about it when they didn't know before. And so I think um, it's best without carve-outs. Thank you. Well, I think that will help us transition to the next talk. Um, we're very fortunate to have Nicholas O'Donnell with us. Um, those of you who know him know that he's a partner at Sullivan and Worcester in Boston. He's a litigation attorney and has been involved in many art law cases before the courts, including Philip v. Federal Republic of Germany involving a claim for the restitution of the medieval Guelph treasure against a German museum, Art Assure v. Art Mentum involving a high-profile lawsuit over the sale of a fine art collection, and the challenge by members of the Berkshire Museum to the proposed sale by that museum of 40 works of art to fund museum operations. So he'll be talking to us tonight about immunity from seizure title disputes more from a U.S. perspective. Nick. Thank you, Alex. Okay, I'm going to keep it keep it snapping. So really what I want to talk about is the intersection of a few different concepts that can affect loans, um, particularly in the context of immunity from seizure. And the things to keep in mind are that the United States has a federal statute, the Immunity from Seizure Act, which was passed in 1965. It is extremely broad. It's like, sounds like the one in Germany, and it forbids the seizure for any purpose by any authority, whether it's a creditor or a claimant or anything. Um, it is not self-executing. This is the critical point. Uh, the borrower or the lender has to apply and obtain the grant of immunity of the sort that Megan put up on the screen. Once that's granted, it's essentially ironclad. New York, in its arts and cultural affairs law, has an immunity from seizure provision, but uh, uh, it is self-executing, uh, but it cannot, uh, it has to yield to federal law. So this is uh, relevant uh, and the, probably the case you would know best in this context, which is the Portrait of Wally case, because that painting and other paintings were here in New York. A claim of title was made against them. The New York DA, the Manhattan DA, seized them, alleging they were stolen property. And the owner successfully challenged that seizure because the New York Arts and Cultural Affairs law forbade its seizure. The reason the case became a case, of course, was that Customs then seized it by alleging that because it had crossed the United States border, uh, and it was further alleged that that import was done in the knowledge that it was stolen, that violated Customs law. So the Customs law violation allegation allowed the seizure of the painting and the subsequent litigation that took many years. Um, <clears throat> and so that's a federal-state interaction that has to be uh, recognized, and if you are a lender, uh, if you are a borrower here in the United States or representing one, it's critical to remember that if you're borrowing something from outside the United States uh, into New York or any other state, you have to do it first. Uh, if you are a, uh, an exhibitor or a borrower here in New York from elsewhere in the United States, you will be safe and your lender will be safe from creditors or from title claims, uh, but take care that that will not necessarily be true in reverse. So if you are representing a collector here in New York and you are lending to another state of the United States, uh, you uh, or your painting are not necessarily safe from seizure there 
for state law claims um, uh, there. I, I, I didn't come up with a laundry list of other federal claims that might um, trump the federal immunity if there were that immunity here. Um, but that's the basic construct. Now, there have been some changes to this, and there's another case I want to talk about a little bit. Uh, the other statute I want to talk about briefly in the context of international art loans is the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976 is an exhaustive list of the exceptions to sovereign immunity under which a foreign sovereign can be sued. Right? So this is the difference between an immunity from suit and immunity from seizure. The, the IFSA, the 1965 law, has to do with the object. It has to do with the property. Can this property be seized by creditors, law enforcement, whomever? Uh, foreign Sovereign Immunities Act has to do with the jurisdiction of the court itself over the defendant. This can be relevant in the context of international art loans because courts generally look at the loan of art as a commercial act. Right? When, you're at, when you're asking, when a court is acting, asking whether an act is sovereign or commercial, the question, the touchstone is, could a private person do this? And so courts have pretty consistently looked at the exhibition and loan of art as a non-sovereign act, because you or I, if we owned a painting, could lend it. So in around 2005, uh, the city of Amsterdam, the Stedelijk Museum, lent several paintings to a show uh, at the Vanille Collection in Houston, which obtained immunity from seizure in advance, which had not happened in Portrait of Wally, um, obtained immunity from seizure in advance. And when the paintings came to the United States, the heirs of Kazimir Malevich sued the Stedelijk Museum in the city of Amsterdam. And they alleged that sovereign immunity was abrogated because of a particular provision, which I spend a lot of other time talking about, which I won't bore you with, but the, what's called the expropriation exception of the FSIA says that if the claim concerns rights in property taken in violation of international law and a separate, what we call a commercial nexus test is satisfied, that is, if the foreign sovereign uses the property commercially in the United States or an instrumentality of the foreign sovereign is commercially active in the United States, it doesn't have to use the property itself, then the foreign sovereign can be sued. It's a bit of a jumble. Uh, and there is a disagreement amongst the circuits as to whether that commercial nexus test is disjunctive or conjunctive. Some circuits hold that you can get the foreign sovereign if the instrumentality is active. That's the Ninth Circuit, the Eleventh Circuit. Uh, some Second Circuit and the DC Circuit say there's one test for the sovereign, one test for the instrumentality. But the point is, in the Malevich case, uh, the property had come to the United States, so we didn't have to worry about which test it was. And the litigation concerned whether the use of a painting that was immune from seizure could be, satis could be used to satisfy the commercial activity prong and allow the claimant, uh, allow the museum to be sued. And, and transparently, and the claimants would have said so at the time, they knew they couldn't seize the painting in the United States, but what they were saying is Amsterdam brought the painting to the U.S., therefore rendered itself amenable to jurisdiction. We want to litigate our claim here, and if and when we win, we'll figure out, I'm sure they had a plan, but the point was they acknowledged that it didn't answer the question of what would happen or how they would ever get the painting back because it had to be returned to Amsterdam, but that it would at least allow them to litigate the suit. They prevailed in that respect. The case settled at a relatively early stage. There wasn't much appellate. There wasn't any appellate case law. In response to that case, in 2016, Congress passed the law that uh, Megan referred to, which is the uh, Foreign Cultural Exchange Jurisdictional Immunity Clarification Act. 
Um, it's not even a snappy acronym, acronym which, is, which is kind of shameful. Um, and what that did was basically write out by legislation the Malevich case. It said that if the foreign sovereign's only commercial activity in the United States is the loan of an object that's been granted immunity from seizure, then it cannot be sued under that provision of the FSIA. However, there is an exception to that exception, which is that if the claim is one alleging looting by the Nazis, then the Malevich scenario is still available. Um, it's pretty specific. And, 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 if you, and if you look at the legislative history, actually, it's interesting. Um, uh, there was a lot of bipartisan uh, Nazi looted art activity legislatively in 2016, um, surprisingly. Uh, and the sponsors talk a lot about, you know, I'm, I'm approving this because it has a cover for Nazi looted art, and that, that motivated a number of them. The law was advanced a number of times, um, but it took several years to pass. And it's interesting because it's funny that you raised the Russian context because, you know, if so, the Immunity from Seizure Act, like I said, is very, very, it's not very old, but it's, it's, it's not new. It's not a modern response to Nazi looted claims or to terrorist financing or anything else. It's, it's a law that's it's now 50 years old. Um, and it's sort of not always well understood because about 10 years ago, when the Russian Federation was found amenable to suit over the Chabad Library, which is... Uh, which is in Russia, which was, is claimed by the Chabad organization here in New York, and they sued the Russian Federation and the Russian Military Library, essentially making the same argument that this was property taken in violation of international law. The plaintiffs uh, prevailed on the motion to dismiss in the district court. They prevailed in the D.C. Court of Appeals, at which point the Russians said, we're out, we're going home. And they just stopped participating, and Russia has been fined $50,000 a day since... 2012. So that, that fine is up to something like $75 million, and they have, obviously have no intention of paying it. But in addition, subject, it's, it's interesting that the language that you, you referenced, Eliane, because they did exactly that. They announced quite explicitly that because of this decision, we will not be lending any works of art to the United States. They, there was a boat that was scheduled to dock in San Francisco. Um, it's sort of a historic, you know, uh, I don't know if it was a sailing ship or military ship, but they turned it around in the harbor and it kept going. Um, so these things have a, have a broad effect. So from the standpoint of what we're talking about tonight, um, the, the critical thing, like I said, is to understand this interaction of where you're protected and where you are not. Because from the standpoint of some of the other things we've heard tonight about the contractual obligations that you may have as a borrower or uh, as a lender or somebody else to do with the exhibition, if any of this stuff goes sideways, it's not only bad because it's not something you wanted, but you may have other financial obligations that come out of that uh, that are going to make your life um, very difficult. Um, so I think I'll stop there because I know we want to get to some questions. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Nicholas. Um, maybe one quick question for me. Um, do you have any thoughts on countries that do not have immunity from seizure laws where you're a lender or advising a lender who's lending into that kind of jurisdiction, what do you do? Are, is, is that dangerous or are there things you can do to protect yourself? Um, I think it's very important to understand where, where you're lending, right? Because um, if in the United States that happened, it would just depend on, obviously, whether you had satisfied the regulatory regime here and gotten immunity from seizure. If you had a letter 
I don't think this would happen in terms of the United States federal government, but if you had a letter from somebody in the government indicating, you know, their affinity to your position, that letter would do you no good in a United States court. And I think you would need to understand what the structure of, of that country's laws are. Um, it may not be a country where, you know, the rule of law is as reliable as you want, which also is probably something to consider in, in deciding whether to lend there. Um, but I think you just you need to understand what the regime is there, the, the, the seizure regime is there, um, and, and be competently advised on it. <clears throat> Thank you. It's now um, my great pleasure to introduce our third and final speaker on the panel. To my right, Anne Rappa. Anne is the senior vice president at Huntington T. Block Insurance. She specializes in art insurance. Uh, the company was founded in 1962 and acquired by Aon in 1991, and it's the leading specialty fine art insurance brokerage firm in the U.S. and manages exclusive underwriting for Lloyd's in London. Anne has 30 years of industry experience providing risk management and insurance solutions to museums, corporate and personal collectors, universities, art dealers, traveling art exhibitors, and art-related businesses. She'll be focusing for us tonight on some of the lessons she has learned in her experience. So, Anne. Thank you. Um, it's interesting that you put the insurance person on the disputes panel because I spend the majority of my days trying to reduce that uh, possibility and to avoid disputes. In that um, regard, I sit by the telephone on a daily basis and when the subject of uh, international exhibitions come up, it's typically either from my museum clients, my private clients, or my art dealers. And the way that they go about the initial questions is very different. A museum will call me and say, we're planning on, can you give me a, a, a cost estimate for this um, uh, unplanned, incomplete exhibition that we intend to have? And so I must say, as long as you stay away from catastrophic exposure, I can provide you with a budget estimate based on a, a number. Do you have a number in mind? And so that's the, um, the start of the conversation with a museum. And they will come back to me after they may have applied for US indemnity, um, after the uh, application process, uh, which is the second uh, meeting, um, they will ask me, now they have a, a much more firm understanding. Because application for U.S. indemnity is an excruciating process. And the standards for U.S. indemnity are very, very uh, high. And so, and, and just to provide a little bit more color, the way that commercial insurance dovetails with U.S. indemnity, it, commercial insurance provides the deductible on the bottom, and so it, it's exposed there, and then also supplements for any individual objects beyond what indemnity is willing to uh, provide coverage for for any individual objects. So insurance uh, from a commercial perspective works very closely with the U.S. indemnity program. And thank goodness that the indemnity program exists because uh, I, the, the, the 
insurance costs for traveling exhibitions are very high indeed because of the escalation of values associated with them. So my museum clients will then send me a checklist which is an excruciating document of many, many, many columns and I then develop a cost estimate based on review of their facilities report, uh, facilities data, the uh, checklist, and the responsibilities for transport and the value of each of those transports. Now my collector clients will call me and ask, should I lend? Very often the question is, should I? And then our conversation is, well, where is it going? What is the facility? Who, how is it being packed? How is it being transported? And what is the underlying insurance? The certificate of insurance that's afforded only captures very little information. It's the actual underlying document that reveals what the terms and conditions and the exclusions are. And European institutions very often have exclusions for uh, atmospheric conditions and uh, employee infidelity and um, uh, uh, environmental controls and there are some requirements for packing and some so it, and the insurance policies are not standard documents these are not consistent um, one institution to another even in the United States there is some consistency but I've seen outside of the United States a myriad of different insurance products. And just like the different insurance products, there are different indemnity schemes. And those indemnity schemes, one country to another, have completely different terms and conditions. So the conversation with a private collector will be very much what is your tolerance for risk and what is it that you are interested in. Very often what I'll do is to compare their own insurance policy to the borrower's insurance policy to provide them with an understanding and a comparison. That gives them the context. So in um, being able to help them to identify and manage and reduce their risk exposure, these are the steps that kind of uh, are part of the equation. And with when it comes to application for immunity from seizure or potential problems because a specific high concentration of a specific artwork is going to a country where there could be a problem, we point out those things along the way and work to try to see if the country allows for uh, application for immunity from seizure. There is something, there is commercial, uh, a commercial response. You can apply for government confiscation insurance coverage. It's not something that is widely purchased, neither is title insurance, but it is available. Um, there are problems with title insurance that relate to um, the potential, if there is the potential for there to be a title dispute, or if there is an issue that you should have known about through uh, common means, like re specific reviews of the object, that could void the coverage. And so these are the things that um, are typically discussed in order to avoid dispute. Great. Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you. <laughs> 
just just one question. Um, if if something does happen uh, during the course of a loan and there is a loss, I mean, how does that play out from the insurance side? I mean, do you, do you sometimes have uh, disputes between the insurance companies as to who has to cover it? I mean, let's say something bad has happened, and then how does the insurance fit into that? Well. Um, condition reporting is so very important for that reason. If condition reviews have been done all along the way, it should it should be very easily revealed which institution's responsibility it was, and that and that uh, me means of insurance would be the uh, the the company that would adjust adjust the claim and settle that dispute. If, however, there is a question about it, that could go on for some time. Hmm. Interesting. Um, we just have, as I mentioned, um, a couple of recent scenarios that I thought I'd just put to, to our remaining panelists. Um, and then there were two, right? Um, so the first one is this. Um, this is uh, the famous Vitruvian Man by Leonardo. Um, some of you might have followed this, uh, this story last year. Um, but this, there was a, a major retrospective of Leonardo's work at the Louvre in Paris, um, commemorating, of course, the 500th anniversary of Leonardo's death. And uh, this work was arranged to be loaned uh, to the Louvre from Venice, where it, where it usually sits. Um, a, an Italian public interest group called Italia Nostra brought a claim through the Italian courts um, to challenge the, the loan to France, um, arguing that the work was too fragile and light-sensitive to travel abroad. So I just I bring this up as a, as a kind of example of what can go wrong. Um, what would you do, let's turn to Nicholas, um, if you were advising the borrower in that situation or in a situation like this where something arises? Well, I think this goes back to understanding who and what you're dealing with before you get into this. I mean, if you're going to borrow a work of art by Leonardo, I, one would hope you are thinking a lot about, you know, the uniqueness of this object and, and just sort of how catastrophic a problem could be. Um, you know, from the standpoint of a case like this, if you're the borrower and a, a public interest group brings this claim to stop the loan, you know, you may want to go where that lawsuit is pending and try to intervene and, and make your point that that obstruction, you know, has a public policy effect, is violating some agreement that you have. You may have the ability to do that. You may not. Um, but it's, you know, it, even as a lawyer, if you're advising a, a borrower, you just you, you want to encourage and you want to understand the facts really well so that, so that you can talk about these risks, you know, before they happen. Thank you. Any, any thoughts about this sort of situation? Only that gradual deterioration is not covered. <laughs> I, I would avoid the risk. <laughs> avoid the risk. Good. Well, actually, the end, the end of that story, does anybody know? It was loaned in the end. The, the, the lawsuit failed in Italy, so it was on display at the Louvre, and I think people were happy about that. Um, this was the uh, alleged bronzino, uh, apparently part of that forgery ring which was talked about earlier, but this was loaned um, by a, a U.S. collection, private collection, to a museum in Paris for an exhibition, and were informed by the French authorities that because it was seen to be a fake, 
that it was going to be seized, so it was not covered by the immunity from seizure. So if this sort of thing happens, you send into another jurisdiction potential of seizure despite the existence of anti-seizure law. Um, any thoughts on, on this kind of scenario, what you would tell the, uh, the lender? Well, I think there too, you just, if you're going to be moving and lending things in an international context, you need to understand what you don't know and where to find out the answer. So uh, immunity from seizure is one thing we've talked a lot about tonight. Um, most Americans, even most American sophisticated collectors, may not know about it very much, but conceptually it sort of makes sense with the way we think about property and the movement of property. It's you own an object, somebody else can either take it away or they can't, right? And the reasons they could are that they own it because you owe the money. That kind of makes sense to people. I think for American lenders, the idea that a government would intervene to take a position on the authenticity of your property would be surprising to people. That's the way I would put it. And so your clients probably don't know that. Um, and I, I think that's an obvious one. I mean, it's, it's who knows what the cultural property law of Slovakia is, but, you know, it, there are certain concepts in European law that I think it would do well, even as an American lawyer, not giving advice on countries in Europe to understand kind of some of the big ones. And authenticity is one of them. You know, rights of attribution and moral rights are just different than they are here. And I think you need to have a kind of a, a working understanding of them and a good network of people who, whom you trust and can help, who can help your clients in those places. Thank you. And any thoughts on, on this? It's much more of a legal issue than an insurance issue. Yeah. Um, I thought we'd just finish with this, uh, the famous Salvatore Mundi. I don't know if anyone followed uh, the debate recently um, about whether when there was a major exhibition of Leonardo's work at the National Gallery in London in 2011, um, this painting was part of that as an attributed Leonardo, um, and apparently during that time it was still being advertised for sale, or arguably advertised for sale by the, the owner who was a U.S. dealer. So it raises issues, I suppose, of, of ethics, museums, you know, should, should they be allowing for this kind of thing when it might increase the value of a work that is being actively uh, circulated uh, for sale, possibilities, um, or indeed providing an attribution which may be questionable? Um, any thoughts on that, just on the museum perspective? So it's certainly a live ethical debate, which you see a lot these days. There's been, I think, an increase in single collector exhibitions which people have some thoughts about, you know, the MFA. Um, Steve Martin had a show a couple of years ago, which was terrific. Um, and he's a great collector. Um, but it, it, it strikes some people as odd, and they don't particularly like it. That's an interesting conversation. It's not really a legal one. And from the spec perspective of the museum, um, there's really no concern I see in terms of any risk that they are behaving inconsistent with their, with their nonprofit status or their charitable status by doing that you know, unless they literally have their hand in the till um, for the value of the collection, which I can't imagine, you know, would, would ever happen. Great. Thank you. Well, and thank you to our, to our panelists uh, for, for finishing off on time. And uh, thank you for all of you for, for being a part of this. I think we'll, we'll stop now. If there are questions, I think uh, Nicholas and Ann will still be around for that. And thank you for putting up with the balmy temperatures here. It's been, uh, it's been remarkably uh, cold in the room. But... We stuck through it, so well done.